Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer for the African deity, Eshu Legba, a deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims. And we are so excited to have in the studio this morning um, two two elders who are going to let us know about how we can exercise some of those choices. Um, we're so happy to have with us um, Dr. Uh, Ia Beji, Kathy Royal, um, who is the daughter of Yemen Ja and has rights to the rituals of the ancestral societies. Uh, she also works to bring the spirit of the ancestors to the global African village. And she is the author of several books and writes under the name of Odulana, um, Oduluna, no, Dancing Storyteller. Uh, good morning, uh, Ia Beji. <laughs> good morning, Wanda. How are you? Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> yes, it's Oda Luna, dancing storyteller. <laughs> you know, I didn't know that all the times I've had you on the air. I never, I never got this part of the bio. <laughs> and and More you're coming. oh, super, super. And then um other Ia, um, Ohan Nedra T. Williams, um, whom, you know, you all are like you go way, way back. I love to hear you hear you all tell stories. Uh Ohan uh Emini, the doctor, is an Olakun priestess, healer, and visual artist from Oakland, California. She was initiated in Benin City, Nigeria, and was given her chieftaincy title in two thousand five. Uh, she is a member of the Egungun Society and performs ancestral rituals, ancestor rituals throughout the Bay Area. And um, Ohen uh, Nedra, Nedra T. Williams, you were mentioning before we went on the air that you've been a chief or initiated something about yes. 38 years. Initiated since 1986. Nineteen eighty six, right, right, yeah, yeah, and and you are joining us to talk about uh, this council that you're a part of, um, and uh, and you all are going to be um, hosting some healing rituals, a council for global ancestral reverence, and and the ancestral veneration for seven generations, 
is putting on a program called um, Council for Global Ancestral Reverence. Uh, is presenting Ancestral Souls Rising. And uh, is that seven days? Uh, October 31st at 9 in the morning through Sunday, November 8th at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Um, I wonder if you could talk to us about this uh, this wonderful and powerful uh, series of programs that you are going to be doing. What are we going to be doing <laughs> globally? Yeah, do you want to take that? <laughs> I was just about to say, uh, E.I., do you want to take that? <laughs> I'd, be, <laughs> I'd be happy to. And the reason I'm going to take this part, because the history of how this wonderful event came to be really mm-hmm. rests with Oheen. The part mm-hmm. that um, keeps me excited is the the message that came through um, the ancestors and the guidance that we have been receiving around the understanding that this is bigger than us. We are a spiritual community. Everyone in the council has a right to the sacred rituals of multiple Orisha as well as the ability to speak through the veil, which is a very special gift. Uh, given to people who have been initiated into the rights of the Egungun society. And the 31st of October is uh, recognized around the world in many cultures, not just African diasporic culture, that that is the time when the veil between the living and the dead is, meaning that ancestors are close to us on that day and can hear our entreatments. Please help us. Please hear us. We venerate you. We have reverence for you. And we are in the time of a pandemic, inside a pandemic, inside an epidemic. Your people, your children, the reason you existed are in trouble, and we need your help around the globe, not just Black Lives Matter in the United States. It's Black Lives Matter. The humanity of the world is calling us. And so we were called to do this, and it's amazingly exciting to see the response that has come from just a small word into the world and spoken into the universe, and people have responded in amazing ways. Could you tell us some of the um, the other members of the council? Uh, yes, our council members, this is Ohi'i Mini Nosopika, and um, our council members are, of course, uh, Ia, uh, Wanda, uh, Wanda Ravenel, Yeye Louisa Tish, myself, uh, Dr. Royal, and Alagba, uh, who is the Alagba of the Oyotunji uh, village. So it is. We are. We create and make up the council. Mm-hmm. Right. So, what's the plan for for these days, um, beginning on Saturday, the thirty first? It says breath, power, prayer. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, breath, power, and prayer 
mm-hmm. is the understanding that, uh, and this is another universal understanding, which is why we love our name that the ancestors have graced us with as a global council, because we know that the power of prayer is universal. It is global. So we're asking, uh, we've asked 24 priests or uh, spiritual people from around the world to join us in prayer starting at uh, 9 a.m. Uh, Pacific time, 12 mm-hmm. noon, high noon, stroke noon, day noon, uh, Eastern daylight time, and going around the world. And all of these wonderful people, women and men, have agreed to put their power and their breath through pay- prayer with us at that time, and it's going to take some time to go around the world, but everyone is starting at that time wherever they are in the world, um, and we will witness that, and it's going to be broadcast uh, on YouTube oh. and Facebook. Um, mm-hmm. There is a Eventbrite Ancestral Souls Rising uh, link that people can register. We invite you to come. We invite you to come with us to hear our prayers and to say your own prayers because it's not about a religion. It is about our ancestors and what has connected us uh, through all these years. And I know Ohini and Yeye Tish and Iyawanda and Chief Alag, but we all agree that when we were packed in as enslaved Africans, even as we came to this new world um, by other means, no one asked and said, Yoruba to the left, Igbo to the right, Edo to center. They just said, this is our process. So we're turning that process around and saying, this is our process. We are putting our power and our breath into prayer to bring this down. Mm. Nice. Wow, that sounds really beautiful. Mhm. And if I can interject here, it is uh, going to be accomplished through what we call the nine layers of the soul. As we mm-hmm. go around, our first day uh, will be the prayers of all of the uh, 24 people that uh, Ia has uh, articulated that will be there. And on that, also on that first day, we will have another um, session, and it will be uh, by. Uh, Yay teach on the universal soul, followed each day after that by the after the universal soul, we will go into the human soul, the sexual soul, the uh, racial soul, uh, <clears throat> from there to the astral soul, the national soul, the ancestral soul, the historical soul, and the guardian soul. Each will be defined by the person articulating that soul so that you get a a, a large breadth that we Africans understand the soul as multi-layered and not just a singular entity. So uh, that in itself is part of our education that we are bringing to uh, everyone that will participate and beyond. You can also go back to our page and go over and look at certain materials. Yeah, is there anything else you would like to add to that piece? Yeah, you did it wonderfully. <laughs> I would like to add that it has been a joy 
to work with the council. um, There's so many things that we're going to capture in our history as we go forward, but the members of the council have been diligent. Uh, Ohini can tell you more about that. We've been working since April at a call from her, and so the, the beauty of it is watching powerful women and amazing men who support us work together. So I really want our membership to know that one of our goals is to advocate, and through that advocating, we are modeling how people of color, how African people in the diaspora can work together. I mean, I, it's been it's been affirming. I'm I, I'm completing myself there, Ohi. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that um, in this uh, uh, taking you through the nine layers, uh, each person will articulate and say a prayer, not only uh, 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 that addresses that particular soul, but also about the people that have died in COVID, because one of our things is to express our deep grief and our way in which we are healing ourselves around the uh, epidemic that we are faced with uh, today, understanding that that is from and descended from the Orisha Obaluaye, or what they say in uh, Africa, Sopona, who is the uh, god of pandemics and pestilence and those things. And uh, also for those that have been murdered through police brutality. So those are the things that we are trying to ask our ancestors to help us with and to articulate that through prayer. And also one of our advocacy issues is also we ask everyone to please go and vote if you have not already. That uh, the third is going to be a transformative time for us, whether you know it or not. We, uh, and so uh, I think I have sort of said that piece in terms of the history. Um, uh, trying to do this type of thing really takes the sanction of our ancestors and what we call the gods, the Orisha or who, whatever uh, uh, tradition that you are in, Loa, uh, or, <clears throat> or whatever uh, our religious tradition we are, those, those things that are greater than ourselves that we are asking for that support. So in that, we had to also get a divination and a reading, and we are under the sanction of an Odu to perform these uh, uh, things. I I had asked many of my other brothers and sisters and elders around to help in this because this is not a singular event to to try, uh, not event, a singular ritual to do. So... um, it was through the support of many and numerous people, those that will be articulating in those particular days and even outside of those days that have helped us helped us to do this um, ritual. Mm-hmm. Um, any other? Yes. Yeah, I was well, looking at this really. Absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Oh, I wanted to ask you, um, if I can interrupt you for a second, um, Ohini, um, Nedra, if you could tell us about this beautiful um, uh, artwork, um, looking in particular uh, at this uh, this piece that's a part of the, um, um, I guess the visual, and uh, you know on the uh, the website where you register, and there's a little girl who 
it looks like lights coming from her eyes, and she's flying, looking up, and uh, there's like a lot of greenery around her, like she's in a forest, and she has something in her hands that's uh, coming out of this um, container, and in her dress has stars and stripes on it, but it's in black and white, yes. and um, and then there's an another, it uh, looks like an older woman below her that's right below where she's something's coming out of this this container and then there's um the uh um i forgot the name of it but it's um from the haitian voodoo and um uh the the drawing that's right on that but mm-hmm. i'll tell you what tell it is okay yes yeah this and, is a, and, a, a, a painting yeah, that's really the i was just describing to people who, who aren't looking at it but anyway go ahead <laughs> oh thank you so much um Yes, when you go to register, you'll see this uh, uh, picture, and it's uh, the one that the council chose of one of my artworks. I was so happy that they chose this one. The name of it is called Maferifun Olokun. Uh, as we know, Olokun is an Orisha that is there at uh, that brings us in and also takes us out in terms of the life cycle. Uh, and what you see in what it looks like for those that are familiar with uh, uh, writings to the ground or how we can speak to the the supreme beings or the supernatural beings. And um, this comes from the Edo tradition, but it looks like a Haitian baby. You're absolutely correct, Wanda, but it's called an ohu in Edo, and it means a ground writing made with sacred chalk that is called efun. And um, uh, most ohins are taught this once they are initiated into the Olokun, uh, uh, tradition of how to speak to the uh, the Orisha or what we call Ehi in um, on the ground through symbol through symbols and the symbol you see there is the signature of a local. The woman rising is actually the spiritual thoughts of the woman that you see crouched in the bottom. I don't know if you didn't describe her, but there are turtles near her. And she's in a prayer position. Across from her is her godmother or a spiritual elder uh, taking her through a rite of initiation, ancestral uh, uh, knowledge. And the woman is, is the one that you said is a little girl is really a spiritual being going up to the heavens to communicate all that is going on down on earth. So that's the one that was chosen, and that's exactly what we are doing in that in honoring our ancestors. We are basically the ground writers ourselves, sending our prayers up to our ancestors and to the Orishas to say, help us, support us during this time. So that's basically the um, the meaning. Ah, nice. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, and so uh, I hope everybody uh, enjoys the artwork. Now, there's another uh, symbolic ground writing itself that we have taken on more like a logo of who we are, and that is a ground writing that depicts the, uh, it looks like a cross with the uh, arrows that are going each way. It's uh, the number four is very sacred in our tradition, and it, it means many things. It means north, east, south, west. 
it, uh, it's the Four Corners, uh, that we do rituals to the Four Corners, uh, is also the, the dividing of the world, dividing of the day and the hours and the week in adult tradition. And it is something that a uh, Ohin learns to draw when they're doing a ceremony to depict, particularly this one that I drew, is where offerings are given in that and on top of that symbol when you're doing a ceremony. So that's, we chose that to say that we are giving our words and our offerings through this symbol to be heard. And so that's the other part of the, the other one. And I don't think you would describe that, but people will see that throughout the literature, and it looks like a hand black and white drawing. Okay, yeah, I haven't seen that part yet. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, so thank you. Uh, Wanda? So to, oh, yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. We have been very um, intentional about the symbols that we use um, and about the words that we say. And so our work in terms of educating, we have uh, elevate, educate, and advocate as part of our mission and vision. And one of the things that we know elders are tasked with doing, especially when you accept and assume the role of an elder, is to be a model for the community. So... Our commitment is for seven years, for seven generations. And that means this generation that we are in, that's our work now. We reach back for three generations knowing that those ancestors, those who came before us are counting on us to carry this forward for three generations. So our education is to bring enlightenment awareness, advocacy, as Oheen said, around why we vote. Our ancestors died for our opportunity to vote. Um, also, why we're carrying out what the Akan call uh, a Sankofa. We are reaching back to retrieve that which was left behind by either uh, lost language, land, or culture, as well as enslavement. So we assume the role of an elder in all our mannerisms, and I think that was something that was really displayed on the council, and we want to have that out in the world as well. So not only do we want people to understand the power of their own prayer, but as Oheen said, even the deliberate way that we do the ground writing, the way that we um, create the prayers, the way that we came into existence, the way that we want to go forward. All of it is to preserve and secure the roles and rights and beauty of the global cultures of people of African descent. And that is not to say we're excluding anyone, but it is to say that right now this world needs to know who African people are and who they were. And that's our work as an elder council to educate, elevate, and advocate through breath, prayer, and power. And Ohini is an amazing artist. I just had to say that. 
(laughs) (laughs) Yes, you are. You really are, Lahini. I wonder if you could both, um, in our closing minutes, you know, talk a little bit about about the ancestors and and why it is important, you know, to um, to call on them intentionally right now. I'm going to let Yah take that one. Well, yes, Mm ma'am. Right now, in this moment, we are the only reason that they existed. They died for us. They fought for us. They protected us. And one of the prayers that I'm authorized to deliver as an Egum priest, and one of the things that I affectionately say to people is, I can marry you, I can bury you, I can lift you up, I can pray you over. What I want you to recognize is that your ancestors are always there for you. All you have to do when you have nothing but your breath is to reach up because they are always reaching down to support you. Mm. Ancestors are the key to the sustainability of a lineage. They are the key to understanding uh, who you are in the world. And we know that in, in our own healing, both the things that happen to us as a culture, because the soul remembers, and the ancestors are a place of healing. They're a place where we can uh, look at the hurt and ask their protection, ask their forgiveness, and we can forgive some ancestors. It isn't written that you have to forgive every ancestor, and what we always say is that you call your beloved ancestors. We will do a roll call of the communal ancestors, as John Lewis says, the beloved community who have fought for us and sometimes loved African people when African people did not understand how to love themselves. And so that's the healing. That's the reconnection. And they are, they are our lineage. They are our link to our history and to our future. So that's the importance of the ancestral reverence. Mm-hmm. Ohini, do you have anything to add? Oh, I have nothing to add to that. That was so beautiful. <laughs> no, <laughs> other than I do call on my ancestors uh, uh, every day and at this time when we are not able to uh, uh, do our burials and our funeral funerals the way that we do, uh, that now uh, you'll find a ways in which you can call them, but call on your ancestors every day. You don't always have to go to a shrine. I walk and talk to my mother when I need to. And these are the things that we're always connected, and so that's the only thing I would like to add, that stay close, stay connected during these times. And I say very fun. You know, something. You, what you just said reminded me of something, Oheen, is mm. that, that the importance of that stay close, Wanda, because, yeah. you know, Sweet Honey and the Rock gave us the song that goes, listen more often to things than to being. It is mm. the ancestor's breath. And so what I know when I am close to my ancestors and my beloved, they, they guide me, they tell me, they show me. 
And this morning, one of the things that just as I had lost my watch, I was afraid to tell anybody I'd lost my watch. <laughs> and I kept thinking the watch is in the house. I know the watch is in the house. Because I'm not at the house, so the watch is in the house. And so I was talking to one of my ancestors, and I was walking, and I was getting things ready, you know, for the ceremonies and things that we're about to embark upon. And the ancestor said, well, you don't have the tobacco. I went to get the tobacco, and guess what was with the tobacco? My wife. The wife. <laughs> and so it's just, you know, it's just that belief that they are me and I am them and that they will help me. He said, he said, Asheo, Ideo. So, um, uh, as, you know, as we uh, conclude, you know, this conversation about about the upcoming um, series of of prayers and rituals, um, could you tell our audience again how to um, to register for for this uh, free series of of ceremonies? Please go to Bright Ancestral Souls Rising. Click that. Register. It is a free event, and uh, it will take you to where you need to go. Um, so you can register before, get your link, and then hit that on the 31st. Your time zone, wherever you are, will be there so that you know when to begin uh, with us because we're in so many different time zones. Uh, yeah, Beji is three hours ahead of me from where we are now, so that uh, you will find that out, and all information is there on Eventbrite Ancestral Souls Rising. Anything else you need? Yeah. And, Wanda, we we will send you a link, and if you would post it in any of the places where um, you have social media, that would be so appreciated so that people can uh, go there as well as directly to Eventbrite. But, we're asking mm-hmm. all of our supporters to to support us because yeah. um, it's just going to be. I've seen a preview and it's brought many <laughs> of us to tears. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. Well, I've been um, sending it out since I got it uh, last week. So, and it's linked to this conversation on the website. But I wanted to want you to say it out loud as well. Okay. Wanda, thank you so much for inviting us and having us on your show today. We do appreciate your uh, contributions to the community, staying up, enlightening the community around, providing events and benefits for us to participate in. So we do honor you, too, in this. Thank you so much for your diligence and attention to us as a community. Oh, you're quite welcome. Look forward to... um to seeing you on Saturday at the first um, first prayer. All right. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> we will be there. <laughs> All right. Thank you, and, and our galas will be to the stack. <laughs> yes, they will. <laughs> right. So, so each day um, when people check in, you know, for for the global prayers, um, mm-hmm. how long how long is the uh, the prayer? How long is this going to be each day? Is it going to vary, or is it the same length of time? Yeah, you take that one. Um, the, now, the the 31st is going to be a lengthy time because there are 24 priests praying 
So okay. that's about that's about a two hour, two and a half hour event, but it goes around the globe, and I think everyone um, should stay and see all of that because that is just so beautiful. The next okay. days, the information on the layers of the soul, the nine layers mm-hmm. of the soul, that runs between fifteen and thirty minutes. Not much long, not longer than thirty minutes at all. And I think that those are so wonderful, particularly for young people who have, who need, who deserve, who should know how to bring all parts of themselves, of their spiritual self, uh, their understanding of their global self, what it means to have a national self uh, together. So those are quite uh, timely as well, but not long. Okay. All right. Super. All righty. Well, uh, much success in your in your rehearsals and preparations, and again, look forward to seeing you on day one, uh, October thirty first. Yes, and thank you so much. I do play, do play on my fede fun. My fede fun. Ekushé wanda sabir. Ekushé. Thank you. Oh, how do you respond to that? How do what do I say? I do play. I do play. Okay. Yes. I do play. There you go. That's, point. <laughs> That's easy. All right, you take good care. Of you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Thank you, dear. Peace and blessings. Claro. Hey, Claro. Good morning, Joe. How are you? Good morning, Wanda. What a pleasure to listen to your guest just speaking. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Oh, we're quite happy to have you. We we talked about you a lot last week, so you were here in spirit. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. So we've had you on quite a few times, uh, Joe Crater. Um, are you the founder and director of our um, Flyaway Productions? I am. Right, yeah. And you've been doing this decarceration series of beautiful work, you know, choreography as well as collaborative work. Um uh and, and yeah, then take you get on the road. Like you went to Sing Sing. Like, whoa. Really? We went to Sing um, Sing. We're going to New Orleans if you know, COVID oh. willing, we're going to New Orleans next year with uh with the project with the first in the trilogy. So yeah, it's um from two thousand seventeen to two thousand twenty two, that's the commitment I've made to the trilogy. And oh. we've made and performed and toured the first one. The second one is made but postponed because of COVID. We were supposed to perform it a few weeks ago, um, but mm-hmm. it's on hold. But it's all made, and we made a film of it, which is currently being edited. So we've kind of made a film as a placeholder. And then the third in the trilogy will happen in 2021 and 22. Mm. Wow, wow. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but, so you tell us, tell you guys. Yes. No, go ahead. No. Well, you said um, that part of the work is not just making dances, but being in collaboration and in coalition mm-hmm. building with um, artists and non-artist organizations. That's something that's really important to me. Um, I feel like that lays art inside of frameworks that gives it visibility and also connects it to what really is happening in the world and what is important in the world. So um, that's a lot of how this art show came about is from that philosophy that um, we don't just make our dances and, and, you know, conjure our audiences and do that, 
but we as an organization and as a group of dance artists um, reach out and connect. So, so here we are right. connecting to you. Right. Yes. Yes. And we're connecting to talk about you know this wonderful um, work that uh, Moad um, is hosting uh, as a as an online um, uh, art exhibit. Uh, Meet us quickly. Painting for Justice from Prison, um, which is uh, curated by um, Rasan New York Thomas, um, and uh, he is the Prison Renaissance co-founder. And uh, you could tell us more about about Rasan and how you know him, and and this wonderful exhibit, and um, yeah, and what what the collaborative plan has been for this with regards to Flyaway and yourself and Moad. And I think there might be some other folks that are involved in the collaboration as well. Yeah, absolutely. Ben the Ark Jewish Action is the fourth in the um, in mm-hmm. the coalition. So in 2018, I put out a call for a black change maker to work with me. Me being a choreographer, a white woman, a Jewish artist, wanting to make a piece that... Um, call together black and Jewish voices to look at mass incarceration um, to um, influence its ending. And Rasan is someone who responded. And um, to be in relationship with someone in prison is not foreign to me because my partner was incarcerated for several years. So um, I, I was so grateful to hear from someone who is working um, to connect with the world from an activist dance um, who was willing to work with a choreographer. Um, Rasan knows nothing about dance. <laughs> um, and uh, he's a writer. He's a writer. He's a lot of things. He's a writer. He's a filmmaker. He's um, one of the co-hosts of Ear Hustle. So we connected. We've written 45 well, now I, I wrote that about three weeks ago. He, we've written about 46 letters back and forth. Mm -hmm. I visited him twice. Um, I was about to bring one of my dancers to go visit him with me and then COVID happened. And so we lost that connection. Um, We're on the phone as much as possible to um, work together. And um, he hasn't missed a beat. We wrote a little article about working together and he said he always writes back to me the same day he gets my letter, which is true, which is such a great discipline. Like, how many of us do that with an email, you know, like you get an email and you're like, oh, yeah, I got to answer that. And then five days go by. He's incredibly disciplined <laughs> in um, communication. And, um, you know, communication is a challenge when someone is behind bars. And um, in the federal system where my husband was, they had email. And I think some of the state facilities have email, but San Quentin does not. So uh, it was mostly letter. We got to know each other through letter. Um one of the things we did was we, each of us, and then we also worked with this woman named Shana, who is a professor at SF State teaching a class in Black Jewish Studies. Um, anyway, she would uh, suggest books to us. So we would, we would read books together and write about them with each other. And that was a really good way that we got to know each other and got to understand our point of view as a collaboration on black mm-hmm. Jewish relationship and mass incarceration. And one of the best things that happened early on was I told Rasan that I made this piece or I was wanting to make this project 
because I really wanted um, Jewish people to get more connected to understanding what mass incarceration is and what our prison system is and is not, and um, understanding the connections of race and capture that Jews and blacks have. There is a connection. It's not an exact match by any shape or form, but there is a connection being targeted and um, othered for your um, for your identity. So Rasan called me out on that, and he said, you know what? We can't just say um, how can Jewish people amplify the call for racial justice. We need to say how can Jewish and black people work together to amplify the call for racial justice? Because to say, you know, what can the Jews do is an expression of white saviorism, and we don't want that. So that was like the beginning of the depth of our relationship. Is It was so um, on point and so, uh, I want to say, easy for him to just say, no, Joe, that's not it, without judgment, without um, – you know, it was just a great invitation. Uh, Rasan is a beautiful human in that he knows how to invite a shift in thinking without uh, judgment, and I really appreciate that. And I think for him, um, because, you know, I live with someone who caused harm, I offer the same um, non-judgmentalness as we work together and as we come to understand each other. And so one of the things that Rasan asked very early on is let's do an art show because let's put forward the art of people who are currently incarcerated. And I'm like, great. Neither of us are visual artists. Neither of us have ever put together an art show before, but we committed to it. And um, that's how we connected with Moad. And Elizabeth Giselle from Moad is just a beautiful human who really understood and really wanted Moad to have a little bit more real connection to um, the current issues of incarceration and how problematic it is in the black community. And so my going to Elizabeth and saying, do you want to work with us on this? And so she was like, absolutely. It was like a little blessing for them because they, Moet had been thinking about connecting to um, incarcerated artists but didn't have the vehicle. And so suddenly Rasan and I show up and say, we'll, we'll do it with you. Um, and Rasan was incredibly proactive in gathering the art really early. It's been sitting in my basement for six months. Um, because somehow he knows that, you know, with prison, there's a level of unpredictability. Things go wrong. And in fact, COVID hit and it completely shut down our relationship in terms of mail and like mailing the art. If he hadn't mailed the art when he had, I wouldn't have gotten it. And this whole thing wouldn't have happened. So, um, you know, kudos to him for being um, having foresight into being really organized and um, having the relationships that he has with folks who are artists working behind the walls and saying, yeah, there's this art show, get me your art by this deadline and get me your bio and get me your statement and get me your materials. And, you know, so um, I just give so much credit to Rasan for um, socially, politically, culturally, and humanly being so on it. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the books that you all read and discussed um, from your list. Oh, yeah. I'm just going to swivel my chair over and look at my bookshelf 
and see, <laughs> let's see, what's there? Um, well, uh, we read the book by Cornell West and Michael Lerner called Jews and Blacks. And it's kind of a controversial book. Um, Michael Lerner is a, is a controversial figure in the Jewish community. A lot of my elders who are Jewish who I spoke to said, oh, I don't really like Michael Lerner's work. Um, but we read the book anyway, and it was a great way in because it is, I have found, one of the most thorough dialogues between a black and Jewish scholar. And um, Cornell West is just, to me, I have so much reverence for um, the way that he thinks and he talks and he frames things. Again, that generosity, but also pointed realism in his politics. Um, so that was one of the first books we read. And then a, another book that we read that was really significant for both of us was a book called We Are Not Afraid. And um, it's by Seth Kagan and Philip Dre. And it's the story of Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney and the civil rights campaign in Mississippi. And um, Rassan really wanted, he didn't know of this book particularly, but he said, let's read something from the civil rights era. Because Rasan and I are both um, in our 50s, and we have a memory, though it wasn't our lived experience because we were babies then, but we have a memory of, oh, there was coalition between blacks and Jews in the civil rights, but we didn't, in the civil rights movement, but we didn't know that much about it. So we chose this book because um, it featured, you know, two Jewish young men and, and one African American young man who were very active in Mississippi, and they were, of course, um, executed, murdered um, by people connected to the sheriff's office and the sheriff's office itself in Mississippi. So it was quite a wake-up call. Um, and this book that we've read, We Are Not Afraid, is written by two journalists, and it's um, it's so detailed that it was really hard to read. Like, it, it took us both months to read this book. And... Um, but at the same time, the depth of information really um, grounded the history and grounded the connection and through line from slavery to the slave patrols to Jim Crow and um, the Deep South, where um, in the 60s, you know, the level of racism led to lynching and execution on a regular basis. And then drawing that through line forward to Rassan's life and him growing up in New York and um, being growing up surrounded by, you know, violent deaths of black people, his brother, his father, um, people in his immediate life. Um, his, his, what he calls, um, one of the things he writes about is his regret for participating in the genocide. And he is someone who took someone's life in self-defense. And um, that's why he's serving a, a long-term sentence, a life sentence. So drawing those connections came from reading this book, We Are Not Afraid. Um, and it gave us um, uh, a dialogue to talk about. And then the third book um, is a book about uh, women, women's um, experience in the Holocaust. And another really dense book, it, it's a book that came out in 2000. 19 and it's written by Agnes Grunwald Spear so it's a relatively new book and it's the first really thorough documentation of how Jewish women resisted um, resisted in the camps resisted in the cities 
And um, some of this history I knew. Rassan was less familiar with Jewish history because it's not his story. And it also, it just grounded us in the reality of day-to-day resistance. Um, there was one woman who was a, a middle-class Jewish woman and, and kind of lost everything and made the choice to, um, she took this red coat and um, tore it up, cut it up, recreated it, and um, beat it up and dressed in it. And she didn't bathe and she didn't wash herself. And so she basically dressed, disguised herself as a beggar walking through the streets of Berlin and made herself so um, unapproachable because she was dirty and she smelled and she was unclean and, and she chose all those things as a disguise so that she wouldn't be thrown into the camp. And that was just one, one of the stories that struck me. And in fact, her character shows up in my piece, Meet Us Quickly With Your Mercy, that is going to be shown hopefully next August when COVID allows us to. But anyway, um, Rassan learned a lot about the history of the buildup of, um, you know, the Nazi war machine and seeing connections between that, what's going on now, seeing connections between mass incarceration and the um, massive rounding up of Jews simply because they were Jews. So um, those are some of the books we read. There were, there are more. But... <laughs> yeah. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about um, the other parts of the um, um, of the trilogy. Um, how many? Yeah. People? I thought yeah, you were going to um, say of the coalition building, but because um, uh, I do want to oh, talk a little no. bit about the no, you panel. Don't want to talk about that. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So. So the second in the trilogy has three components. It's the the dance performance, public art performance outside, which is on hold. Um, It's the art show, which features um, 13 artists who are currently um, working from their cells in San Quentin, though actually Antoine Banks is is out. So um, 12 artists inside, one artist who's gotten out. And, um, And then the third part of the project was the panel, the panel discussion um, between blacks and Jews. And it was moderated by Robin Levy and Ashlyn Nett, um, who identifies with they pronouns. They work with Ella Baker Center and held space as a Jewish voice. Emile de Weaver is Rassan's partner in um, the founding of Prison Renaissance. And he was um, uh, at San Quentin and has now been out for a few years. And he was on the panel. And Eric Ward is an activist working out of Portland and the Northwest and is, one, to me, one of the most profound thinkers of the 21st century, as far as I'm concerned. And so um, the four of them were on the panel, and it was a really rich conversation. Um, I think one of the best things to come out of it was um, looking at the delineation between white supremacy and white nationalism, white supremacy. And this is Eric Ward's definition, but I I think everyone in the room learned so much from hearing this. Um, White supremacy being an emerging form of power about building power and white nationalism is building power specifically through ethnic cleansing of blacks, Jews, and indigenous. What was most profound that Eric said was that each of these phenomena has their own origin story. And I thought that was a really profound way to think about the way these systems have developed 
um, and have destroyed, but they're not the same. They're a little bit different. Um, white supremacy is written on the paper of race, a false binary of black and white. White nationalism is, white nationalism is written on the paper of anti-Semitism. And I love that Eric, as an African-American man, a scholar or activist, doer, really understands the depth of connection between anti-Semitism and anti-Blackness. And um, that, I think, is a really important story to move forward. I say that as a Jewish person. It's important to me that that connection is made and pulled forward. And so Moad, the art show, sort of understood that. And one of the things Rassan did is um, there were uh, there was an artist who is both black and Jewish whose work is in the show. And there there's another artist who created a portrait of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And this was before she died. So the timing was really, um, you know, pretty timely that this portrait is created of her and, um, and then she died. And now it's at Moet in the art show. So, yeah, I did just want to mention that the panel happened and um, it was a really in-depth conversation. There was just no BS and it got really deep, really fast. Um, and that was wonderful. So um, I think there was an understanding and this was said that mass incarceration is the linchpin of American racism. And it also reveals America's failure to listen Um you know, as we have collected um, the the um, the outcomes of American racism over time, and this summer really being, you know, the summer of race rebellion really being, um, you know, yet another um, opportunity for people like me who are white and Jewish who are not black to come in and say, yes, I am going to be a part of changing this. Um, so the art show and the panel and the, the performance are all ways to ask us to come together and, and watch and learn and do. Mm-hmm. Right. And I wanted to um, let our audience know that the, uh, the panel was recorded and you can actually um, watch it on, um, on the uh, MOAD YouTube channel. And you can also, when you go to this exhibit, um, which is um, MOAD, sf.org meet us quickly forward slash black and Jewish you can actually or just go to Moad and click on current exhibits <laughs> and and yeah. you know when you go into the um, uh, to that particular space all of the different um, supplementary um, aspects to the art show are, are also available and um so the piece that you mentioned, Black and Jewish, is by Orlando Smith, right? 11 by 14 mm-hmm. inches, mm-hmm. ink and colored pencil yep. on paper mounted on foam core. I want to talk a little bit about the piece because um, it's, uh, it's got a lot of writing in it. It looks like a, a cartoon strip. Yeah, I think he's a graphic novelist. Uh, I mean, a graphic mm-hmm. artist. What do you call that? I don't know what you call that. Graphic. See, I'm not a visual artist. <laughs> I mean, I've I've learned so much from, um, you know, engaging with the art here. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I one of the things I love about the work is um, about this artist's work is the protest poster that he made. 
um, where it features Flyaway Productions, Museum of African Diaspora, Prison Renaissance. Like he he documented the history of this. Oh, and Counterpulse, who's another partner in this project, who I forgot to oh, mention that's... because the dance yeah. is happening on their building. Um, mm -hmm. But that he, you know, in creating a piece a piece of art, he also documented this moment of history, which is Rassan's and I's little corner of the world where we made something happen. And um, so now it's documented in the art show, and, and I find that really, um, that was really moving to me. Yeah. Right. Do you want to tell our audience a little bit about the story in the in the piece? Since, um, uh, you mean the, what, the one that O. Smith made? Yeah, that, um, that Orlando made, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I don't, I I. I I would say no because I would never want to speak for him. Um, I don't know why he made the choice to. Um, so he he works with pen and ink and and a little bit of color. So it's not black and white. It's pen and ink and color. And um, it's it's a uh, um, sort of in the style of of uh, graphic novels. Um, again, I don't know exactly how to describe that, but um, but he made the choice to name all the partners in the work and then um, have representations of folks who seem like they're inside the system. And um, uh, I think there's maybe some version of me in here. <laughs> We've never met, so I'm not really sure. Um, but it's very much a protest poster. And, um, and it's protest series number 19, he calls it. So um, that's about all I know. You know, Wanda, I'm sorry to say I don't know that much about um, the origin stories of each of the pieces. And, of course, I wish the world was different and we could have all the artists on your show um, because they really <laughs> that should. Be nice. And they could talk about they, the work. They really should yeah. be speaking for themselves. Um, I, I mean, one thing Orlando says about himself, he's out to achieve critical success among his peers in the genre of comics and graphic novels. Um, which he writes to expose injustice in the criminal system. He started out as, as a tattoo artist, and you can really tell in the artwork. Mm -hmm. And then he says, but drug abuse and criminal activity landed him in prison with eight life sentences due to the three strikes law, which is one of the most unfair laws in the world. Um, mm -hmm. He's a self-taught 53-year-old illustrator and political cartoonist born and raised in South Central L.A., um, so I'm sorry I'm not really answering your question, but I'm not no, that comfortable no, talking in detail about no, no, I, how I the art. Wanted, no, no, I wasn't at wanted. I didn't want to know an origin story. I just wanted because I haven't read it, and so I just wanted uh, you to tell us what the different boxes were saying. Because I, because you've uh, seen it, you've yeah. lived with the work, so yeah. that was all. But yeah, there's no problem. It's actually um, right here in my office. I'm literally packing up the art and bringing it over this weekend to Prison Renaissance because the art is being auctioned. Um, mm -hmm. And the sale of the art will go directly to the artists, um, you know, which is really important. Some of them are collecting money for defense, legal defense. I know Rassan um, is mounting a whole new level of legal defense. And I know he's not one of the artists, but... Um, uh, I know that one of the other artists in the show, and I'm not sure which one, is also um, mounting um, some legal defense work. So um, important that I'd love your audience to know is that the art is actually for sale 
um, Prison Renaissance is the website. And on the MOAD website, you fill out a letter of interest, like a little form, a Google Doc form, uh, to say what form you're interested in. And then Prison Renaissance is taking care of the logistics of the sale of, and the auction. And that is going up in November. The auction is opening in November. But so literally, I'm staring at my, all around my office, it's littered with art. Littered is the wrong word. It's blessed with being filled with art <laughs> that we're um, wrapped, wrapping in bubble wrap and shipping over to Oakland um, this weekend. So, yeah. Um, but you um, had asked me um, about the whole of the trilogy. So the first in the trilogy was about women with incarcerated loved ones and what is our story and how is our story a love story and how do we carry the burden of incarceration and so that project happened in partnership with the SE Justice Group and the second in the trilogy we've been talking about and the third in the trilogy is part partnering with Community Works who are based in Oakland and really puts our money where our mouth is in investing in restorative justice um, and using art as a tool in restorative justice. And so that project is going to be a collaboration with Community Works, which I just said, and Mad Lines, who's a hip-hop artist, composer, writer, um, and she's worked with me. Uh, this will be her second project with Fly Away. And, um, and then a core group of dancers of Fly Away, um, many of whom are either survivors of violent crime and or have uh, incarcerated family members. So that's what where we're headed to in 21 and 22. Wow, wow. Yeah. Mm. Well, you're really busy, and wow, it sounds really exciting, um, you know, the work that you're doing. And uh, my other guest is in the studio, but I wanted to um, ask you in closing, um, about flyaway, uh, it's it's literal uh, in that um, you you choreographed um, in in ways that defy gravity, and uh, I was wondering if you could talk about flying and and how you came to enjoy that particular type of movement. Yeah, we dance off the ground. Sometimes we're two feet off the ground. Sometimes we're a hundred feet off the ground. We're most often flying off the sides of buildings. Um, I have very big vision. My work is big and very expensive, unfortunately, which is kind of a hard choice for an artist to make. Um, the origins of my work really date back to two women, Terry Sengraff, who is really seen as the founder of aerial dance internationally, um, and also Joanna Highgood, whom I danced with for many years and whom I still um, collaborate with as a teaching artist in her youth program. Um, in the Bayview, and she is a long-term friend and mentor who has really um, influenced the direction that I took in fundamental ways. And also um, another sort of cornerstone of how I do what I do is through study with Master Lu Yi, who was for years the primary trainer at the San Francisco School of Circus Arts. And um, so those three people are really my elders and my um, mentors in how I've gotten to where I've gotten. Um, and then working with my dancers to invent and invent and invent in how many ways we can fly through the air and how many objects we can fly on, off of, and through. So the, mm -hmm. the working process 
though we are hierarchical in that I am the director and determine sort of the large story of how we do what we do. The development of the work is very collaborative and the dancers' knowledge and wisdom and bodies are really key to um, the invention that we um, partake. Mm-hmm. Right, and and I think, um, you know, Fly Away, uh, in collaboration with Rasan, um, who is representing, you know, visual artists um, who are incarcerated, so, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they're flying, you know, through through their art and through their various creative mediums, um, and then you all are actually flying, literally. Um, I think that's a really great collaboration because, um, you know, each of you, you know, uh, so far as the company and these artists are able to collaborate in ways that, you know, you said you're not a painter, <laughs> and then they're no. not able to fly, like literally. Right. So, you know, so it's really nice, you know, the way that, you know, each one can sort of take off where the other one sort of leaves off um, to be able to make the whole vision, um, you know, more expansive around what does it mean, yeah. you know, to have um, this particular punitive type of um, of uh, system abolished. So anyway, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and just to conclude, there was one little bit of story I wanted to tell, which is that completely separate from each other, Rasan and I were both influenced by Brian Stevenson in a very similar uh, way. Um, <laughs> you know, he met, Rasan had the fortune of meeting Brian Stevenson in person and hearing him speak, and I read his book, and then I heard him speak when he spoke at an American for the Arts event. And he, for, for me, the phrase, get proximate to the marginalized, is what really called me in. And Abrasan was really called into um, being proximate, pulling people proximate to him as someone whose voice is clipped right now because he is behind the walls and communication is difficult and all of those things. So um, I love that we were kind of at the same time but not knowing each other really influenced by the same idea and phrase and human being, being Brian Stevenson, and that, mm-hmm. you know, years later that brought us to each other. Right, right. Yeah, definitely. Um, just Mercy and uh, and his his call for us, you know, to be, to think about being proximate, but also just sort of thinking about the whole idea that, you know, it's the brokenness, you know, that, that sort of we connect around as well, you know. Um, yeah. And because and, when he was asked, you know, why he's so interested in, you know, defending people that are on death row, and, and he said, you know, within like in his first in the book, he talks about how when he's sitting in front of this, this young person who is the same age as him and they're having this conversation, he says, I have a message to you that you've gotten some more time to live. And, and, and just sort of seeing that transformation, it came over the person that he was delivering this message to after he had had a lot of trouble getting into the prison to be able to deliver the message in the first place. You know, that story that he tells, such a great storyteller. It's just awesome. Mm-hmm. And then his, um, uh, you know, the the National Memorial for Peace and Justice and the Legacy Museum for Slavery. Have the you Legacy been Museum. to see it, Wanda? Yeah, I, I'm a Brian Stevens expert. <laughs> I teach his oh book. Oh, my God. I, I've really seen him talk. I, I was... I was there, you know, when it opened, um, the, oh uh, the National Memorial and Legacy Museum from Slavery to Mass Incarceration. Yeah, I was there. 
Um, only problem you know, is my friend didn't my... want to go to the church where he, I think it was one of because Montgomery, Alabama, everywhere you turn is some 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 really historic African American history. And he spoke at that church, um, Dexter, uh-huh. I think, Avenue. Um, I'm not sure. Not Dexter. I'm not sure. It might be Dexter Avenue. I'm not sure, but there's a famous church, and he was there. But my friend told me, oh, I don't go to church. I'm like, oh. And then I heard, like, oh, man, you really missed it. Wanda, this lady that I met at the airport coming home, she told me she was there, and she told me about it. But, uh, yeah, Stevie Wonder performed that evening at this big program, and it was just, like, awesome. And then. Brian Stevenson has a, a Bay Area story in that he was an intern as a a, um, a young law uh, student at the Legal Services for Prisoners with Children in Oakland. Used to be San Francisco. Oh, I think I know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's Dorothy Nunn, uh, his executive director. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so that was like amazing because we I I saw them in Montgomery too, and I'm like, hey, Dorothy, I'm Dia, you know, all the folks. <laughs> As uh, um, the uh, attorney for the organization at that time, Day, and now she's at UC Berkeley in the Underground Scholars Program. She's running that. Mm-hmm. No, I think oh, I think she might have moved on from that, but I'm not sure. Yeah. So anyway, we're just rambling, and I'm rambling, and my other guest is there. But you had you were, you were going to say something, and then I really need to get to Sheba. Go ahead. <laughs> Oh, I just wanted to say that, you know, it's been I, I my plan to bring my son to um, the Legacy Museum before he graduates mm-hmm. high school, but then COVID has kind of ruined our plans a little bit. So I hope that I'll be able to do that. He has two, one and a half more years of high school, so that's my mm-hmm. plan. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Well, Wanda, yeah, it's thank amazing. you so much for um, hosting me, and Rassan says hello. He he knew that oh, I was going to cool. be talking with you, so he has met you before. So he yes, says hello yeah. and um, okay. Um, yeah, keep up the work, and I hope we'll talk again as the trilogy moves forward. Yeah, well, tell Rasan that I'm 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 not I can't do I'm not as as um, uh, disciplined as him. Uh, I I I am <laughs> going to write that letter so that so that we can oh, have good. a. Uh, have a letter conversation, you know, at least. Uh, but maybe, you know, I mean, he could call me. Um, maybe you, we could talk about that because that would be a lot easier <laughs> to talk to yeah, about the art yeah. exhibit, you know, on the phone, you know, um, if that works out. So let me know it's how very, you know, we could. It's hard for him to set a time. Like that's oh, that's an outside-the-walls construct, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah setting a time it's it's yeah especially right now with covid everything is so wacky right there but that's a whole that's a whole yeah. other conversation yeah well let's talk about it because it's okay he doesn't have to set a time just just set a day <laughs> ah, all right yeah, a day would be good you know what day and then we can work on the time i mean you know i can be flexible okay and then we can get cool. his voice that would be hot that'd be really oh, that'd cool. be awesome mm-hmm. i love it yeah. <laughs> but thanks, Joe. It's been good talking to you. Okay. Thank you, Wanda. <laughs> You're welcome. You take good care. You too. All right. Peace and blessings. Good morning, Sister Sheba. Makeda Haven. Hi. Good morning. I'm good well. Morning. How are you? Can you hear me well? Oh, I can hear you very well, and I got your Excellent. bio and everything, um, so we Yay. can. This is part two. Yeah. I'm of sorry the, uh, I didn't send the picture. <laughs> oh, that's okay. 
No worries. Um, so this is um, part two of the uh, Activism 101 with uh, Sister Sheba, who writes, she was born in South Carolina at Fort Jackson Army Base 68 years ago. She is the eldest of five children of Harold and Carol Grayson. Her father was in the Navy during the Korean War, and her family lived in Alameda, California until she was 12, and then they moved to East Oakland. During her childhood, uh, civil rights workers were killed. Uh, Malcolm X was assassinated. Black churches were bombed, and Martin Luther King Jr. was killed. It's like, whoa, like one of those things would have been traumatic, but all of them? Like, my goodness. Um, she is the mother of one daughter, Attica George's uh and he says Attica Georges, and he says is married and divorced twice. Is that you or Attica? I was married and divorced. <laughs> Me. <laughs> I was married and divorced. The wedding. I thought Attica was married and divorced twice. No, that was me. <laughs> and uh, and you've been an activist since junior high school. So you started telling us, you know, some stories. Um, last week and um mm-hmm. sorry that uh, I ran over with my previous guest so um oh, no, we might no. have to have a that we might have to have a part three. Oh well, cool. I really I'll... enjoyed listening to it. That was very interesting and that's very important work. And mm-hmm. I think that uh using art in activism is a is a very uh it's a concept that lasts through time because even when the uh prisoner is released, that concept remains. Yeah, I like that. Mm-hmm. I really like that. Right. And and you're an artist too. Um you know, words yes. myth and, and, um, and you yeah. you yeah, you do um what is it, textiles, right? Yeah, I do a lot of textiles and since uh, since I moved to Sacramento, yes, and jewelry and because of the jewelry I had to study fine art because I want to uh become a fine jeweler. And uh, when I studied lost wax casting, um, I had to. I went into the um, fine arts department at Sac City, and mm-hmm. I'm in Eureka. I live in Eureka now because I want to go to school. Because number one, I want to breathe clean air, and number two, one of my uh, goals um, is to uh, study jewelry making at uh, at Arcata at Humboldt State University, which is like the second oh. best school of jewelry design in the United States. And it's world mm. famous for, um, oh, my good, Yoshi, I'm forgetting the, how to pronounce the name. It's a style of jewelry of anodized um, copper that uh, was oh. developed at Humboldt State University by one of the professors there. Mm. Nice, nice. Oh, I hadn't yeah. known about that. Well, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad yeah. you were on with uh, with Joe, so you could tell us this other little nugget about yourself. Nice, nice. Yeah. So, yeah, um, so wow. It's still, yeah, it's still um, it's still the the art concept, and and a lot of uh, and also as a poet, you know, a lot of my uh, poetry, all more, for the great majority of my poetry is political as well. Mhm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you um, were talking to us about about how um, to change policies. You have to be patient, and but you also have to be present. And I was just yeah, wondering you what your thoughts diligent. are. Yeah, I, diligent, yeah. yeah. And I was just wondering. 
diligent. Oh yeah, diligence, no problem. Yeah, um, yeah. diligent, and and maybe have have something to do with your hands while you wait. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, for your turn oh, to yeah. see uh, on these various um, uh, um, you know, in these various meetings that happen, um, with and without um, you know the community present but I also wanted you to talk about um you know since we're um you know we're we're a week less than a week away from the election and it's a big one um I was reading yes. in National Geographic that this is going to this is probably going to be the largest turnout in the history of elections in this country um I think so. certain, yeah yeah cuz cuz there are like people lined up voting early and uh, yesterday I dropped my ballot off, and I've got a, um, yeah, and you know at the at the courthouse because I'm like I told my daughter no, don't put anything in the mailbox. You need to take it by the courthouse. So I'm gonna have to go get there. They're gonna sign them over to me because they're not going out. She said you have to get out your car. I'm like yes, yeah, and just put put your arm out of the car. You got to get out and put it in the slot. So yeah. So anyway, um, I was wondering if you have any thoughts because you told me that um, at one point. 18-year-olds couldn't vote, and I know on this particular ballot, we are looking to to move the age to 17 for those young people who are going to be 18 that same election year. Um, so, yeah, I want you to talk a little bit about sort of what what your thoughts are, you know, as you think about this particular uh, election and and the power of the people to cha- make change, and and your you know being an elder. You know, having you know lived through some of these things, and and now you're on the oh, other yeah. side. Like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah. We were talking about uh, the war in Vietnam and how that led to the uh, the to 18 year olds having the right to vote. And I did I did look it up thanks to uh, Google that it happened in uh, uh, it was ratified at the end of 19 in uh, what was. June of 1973, that 18-year-olds could vote. What had happened was um, when I was in high school, there was a lot of anti-war uh, activism, and it was also coinciding with the, uh, the Black is Beautiful movement. Uh, so we, we talked about that in the context, voting in the context of the Vietnam War, that people were being killed who could not vote. They were being sent to war without the right to vote. So that did happen. And um, from that, from the civil rights era, the, the, the right to vote has been a key strategy in, in freeing black people from uh, white supremacist madness, right? So that right now it's on full display, and it's so. And even what you were talking about, putting your ballot in the mail, I am amazed that that uh, with the white supremacists in the White House, they would be so bold as to tell people that if everyone votes, the Republicans would never be elected, and that mail-in ballots are fraudulent, so that. Here is my political hack who's going to make sure that the mail does not go through, which is a federal crime. It's amazing that they would be uh, so bold. And so I'm really happy that uh, so many people are voting. I'm really glad that the whole world is watching. 
and that the whole idea of America being a great democracy has been exposed as a, a, a myth, as propaganda and marketing, right? So, and uh, even the whole story of the Electoral College, making sure that uh, poor whites were kept in indentured servitude, in other words, for uh, eventual for slavery of one generation, and that uh, that the Electoral College was also installed to preserve slavery. So this is for me, yay! It's the it's a time of of pending celebration. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. So um. So talk about. You know, talk about your your um, some of the high points in your work as an organizer and as as a leader. Well, I would say that um, the first thing that I got involved in was an after school program. It was peer led, and it was led through uh, Haven Court Community Church. That was my first uh, foray into the world of activism. And to see that as an activist, you could actually make material changes in people's lives. The uh, One of the attractions for me, later I joined the Black Panther Party. I joined first, I'm skipping, first I joined the Black Student Union in uh, high school at Castlemont High School. And uh, we were dealing with the issues of Vietnam and, in, uh, and some of the effects of de facto segregation because we had uh, hand-me-down textbooks. So you would have your math book would have pages missing. Your social studies and uh, and science books would have pages that uh, had been uh, drawn over or, you know, because the, the new books went to the white high school up the hill, went to Skyline High School, so there was a race and class differential even in our high school studies. So so, the, so the, you see how those things sort of continue on. Joining the Black Panther Party, there was also an emphasis on um, literacy and, of course, funding, because the, one of the civil rights movements, SNCC had introduced the idea of the Panther Party in the South. The uh, white folks voted under the rooster and black folks voted under the panther. And with that symbol, people uh, could uh, pick their candidates and their issues. So those, for me, it's like one continuum, and I see the, the, the progress, like we were talking last time about the idea of a spiral. It seems like you're going around in circles, but the movement is still forward. And um, that's where we are, so that's why I call it a time of uh, pending celebration. I recently moved from uh, Sacramento to Eureka, and uh, you know how you sort of edit your collection of stuff that you have? So I keep finding things for the archives. It's about uh, time. BPP committee has an archive that's uh, curated by Billy X. And I keep coming across stuff that I'm going to send to uh, Bill Jennings, also known as uh, Billy Billy X. And uh, one of them was a letter from a political prisoner named Noah Washington. And he was talking in that letter. He's 
he's now with the ancestors. But he was talking in a letter in 1996 that he wrote to me. We used to correspond briefly about the importance of voting. He was talking about the importance of um, continuing to have people write letters to prisoners and how important that was. And so I was really happy to uh, listen in on the sister talking about the art project that she's doing with the prisoners. So, yeah. To me, it's all one. It's it's all one continuum, and I'm really happy to see the young people moving it forward. Now, what we were talking about was the the tedium and boring aspects. I mean, art <laughs> is exciting. <laughs> Going to city council meetings and county board of supervisor meetings and state commissions, that stuff is boring, straight up. You can wind up falling asleep in those meetings, especially the city council, because the city council does a lot of conversation about the sewers. And that was uh, one of the things that we were talking about, was that sewers are, like, vital to a city. And... um, and I think it's a good metaphor for uh, some of the things that, as an activist, we have to get rid of some of our our stuff in healthy ways. So <laughs> we have to just uh, dump stuff. We have to get rid of it in uh, healthy ways. And, uh, and I'm saying that with my stuff, I have to uh, downsize because I'm in an old folks' home, right? And... Um, mm-hmm. I also have to, uh, I mean, I don't have to, but I find myself uh, cherishing some of the memories that are attached to my things. So I want to preserve them, and that's why I put them in the archive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I want to mention, um, in conjunction with what you were saying about city council, I want to let people know who might not be aware that tomorrow, Thursday, October 29th, uh, at 1.30, uh, the Oakland City Council is going to consider whether to sell the Oakland Coliseum land to billionaire John Fisher. And this is from um, uh, from attorney um, uh, Pamela Price, who ran for uh, mayor, um, was it last year? Um, in, the, in the last mayor, I think it was last year. And John Fisher um, is a staunch Republican who donated $9 million in 2012 to a dark money group opposed to President Barack Obama's re-election. He owns the Gap Stores and the Oakland A's. He wants to own the Coliseum land as well. And so the call is for people to call or Zoom into the city council meeting before it starts at 1.30 tomorrow, uh, the 29th. The sale of the Coliseum land is item number two on the agenda, but you have to pre-register before the closed session begins. And she gives a link to the closed session and um, I don't know where you could find this, but um, I'm sure it should be on the website for the city of Oakland for the webinar information so you can get the information. And then to make a public comment by phone, you can call Erie Coates 669-900-6833, 669-900-6833. And then you enter the webinar ID, which is 826 826- Zero six six zero six five nine three. Again, that's eight 
2606606593 and uh and then she gives talking points. And so let me see if I have a um a uh, email address for Pamela Price activists. And her um her email address is justice at PYP Esquire ESQ dot com. So justice for Pam and then Y Price PYP Esquire ESQ dot com to get all of this information if you're interested because it's too much for you to write down <laughs> the talking points because she goes into great detail and she's on point. So I, if anyone is available, I highly recommend that you do this because um, she's great. She's really great, and she does Wonderful. get back to folks. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. I agree. I remember when the when the the money was set aside to build the Coliseum, and people were advocating for it to be spent on the uh, school system and mm-hmm. on uh, other community projects. And so that went ahead with the idea that it was going to produce jobs and revenue for the city. So amazing. Again, the the idea of a spiral, and I hope that y'all uh, do not <laughs> sell sell the Coliseum to a bigot. Yeah, yeah. It's just so, it, you know, there was so much activity over in that part of Oakland before they um, shut it all down, you know, sold all the land, um, demolished all of the uh, – the family-friendly, um, uh, you know, um, I guess uh, projects there, you know, like like the, um, you know, the uh, what was it? Um, I'm trying to remember um, the golfing, the miniature golfing, the um, the movie theater. I mean, there was a whole lot of fun, family fun things over in that area mm-hmm. of Oakland that are yeah. gone, and then there was like nothing there. For like a long time, and then they started building, you know, housing. Yeah, it's um, you know, it's kind of it, you know, it became a really dead area when it had a lot of activity and a lot of life, and we had things to do. I mean, I don't know how things would shift now because of the pandemic. However, you know, there was a whole oh, lot yeah, of there were, there were many years between the building and um. And them tearing down all of those different, um, uh, you know, edifices before that, similar to what they mm-hmm. did in Fillmore, you know, when they, uh, you know, yep. just took yep. all all the homes and ran everybody out, and it was just like, it was just like, what do you call it? Um, gentrification. Yeah, but before the gentrification, you know, when it was just like, um, I forgot what you call it, but when you like. Oh. Redevelopment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it was redeveloped because it was, you know, like it was an eyesore and it was, you know, like nobody was living there and it was da 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 and it was like, but people were there and then you're you're right, yeah, you know, it was black and, remo- and removal. Slumlords. Yes. 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 It's interesting mm-hmm. how these euphemisms come about to uh, to cloak capitalism, basically. There were a lot mm-hmm. of slumlords in Fillmore, right, and in the Western edition. And the same thing was true in Oakland, and it would. And I hope that one of the uh, talking points is that that land can be used to reduce homelessness, which is the scourge of Oakland right now. Mm-hmm. Oh, amazing. So, so yeah, yeah that would be issues, great. Yeah, some of these issues um, 
one of the other things that Noah talks about in his letter is about scourge of drug addiction. And some of mm-hmm. these issues really got out of hand when uh when uh crack and and other drugs became so powerful in the community that uh that people basically took their eye off the ball. And and a lot of these problems were worsened. And when I was in the Black Panther Party, we were talking about housing fit for the habitation of human beings. And now so many people are unhoused that it's um, it's like its own uh, epidemic within a pandemic, right? So, mm-hmm. or a pandemic within an already existed epidemic, and the connection between uh, moneyed interests. And health is is uh, is so stark, even in what you're talking about with the billionaire. So if the billionaire and the dark money hadn't been employed so heavily to oppose first uh, Barack Obama and then deploy to prevent the election of uh, Hillary Clinton, not one of my favorite people on the planet, but I do not think that she would have destroyed the office of uh, pandemic response. You know, so some of these issues are so uh, clear that, like I said, I'm uh, pinned in celebration. Because I think people can see what's happening and they can feel how it touches them personally. And uh, that's what that's when politics changes, is when people, is when, uh, when it touches people individually and they know it, you know. So... When it's not the other person that's suffering, it's themselves. So I think that uh, this is like a, a a pivotal point in history, and I'm so glad that so many people are taking part in it. Right? Yeah. 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 Definitely. Have there ever? Have you ever um, sort of? Um, have you lived through any other type of um, uh, where it was this? You know, um, I mean, there was so much at stake, and 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 what, and if so, what was the outcome? Was it favorable? And if well, not, uh, what did you do? Yeah, well, <laughs> with Vietnam, we did we did not win. We got Richard Nixon. <laughs> Very important. Okay. Bobby still got locked up in 1968 along with Abby Hoffman and a bunch of white activists. Protesters mm-hmm. were uh, peaceful. Protesters were shot and killed by the National Guard, and mm-hmm. still, that election was uh, lost. And we got Richard Nixon and the prolongation of a war. So that uh, so that was uh, very important. The um, and then prior to that, both uh, Robert Kennedy and John Kennedy were assassinated because of their pro-people politics. And I know these are like reformist politics or what we call progressives now, but these people were outright killed for having, uh, for not towing the, um, what I call the vulture capitalist line, you know, where the where people have the same attitude, just not as blatant as uh, that orange thing in the White House now, <laughs> says that uh, that uh, it is what it is. People die every day. I, I mean, some of the things that he says outright 
have been going on all along. He's just really blatant with it, you know. So, so I'm just I'm in a way I'm really glad that he's so dumb that he says out loud the things that they have been trying to hide for years. He's a ma- he's a quote master of marketing, but he just when he tells quote the truth, it is so it is so blatantly murderous and uh and depraved that that people respond to it regardless of whether they're in favor of it or not. And the people who are in favor of it have the appearance of uh cult devotees, you know, so it's very uh it's a, it's a. I think it is a very pivotal time, and I, and I, and I think it's probably that all the people. I agree with all the people that are saying this is the most important election of my lifetime. Yeah, I would say so. This is uh, mm-hmm. even, even with the murder of candidates and presidents, this is even more important than those elections because the, the. Uh, there is a point of uh, political nudity. Let me put it like that. There's a lot of political nudity. <laughs> and you can't unsee that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I was just wondering, um, is there any anything else you'd like to share around um, uh, encouraging, you know, young people in particular to um, – you know, to to let their voices be heard and not be deterred, and to be, yeah. um, you know, vigilant and diligent, and and yeah, make okay. sure that, yeah, that they you know make this world work for them. There's a, a short poem that I wrote a little while ago. It's um, mm-hmm. we, I'm what is it? I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. And I'm close enough to hear them say, our children must be free. So I invite you, like me, to stand upon the shoulders of giants. And let me whisper in your ear, your sisters and your brothers must be free. And that Megar Evers is still dead. So, yeah, so I hope that those who don't know who Megger Evers is find out. Right, yeah, yeah. Oh, that was beautiful. Yeah, that was really Thank beautiful. You. Yeah, and I want to let you know and let others know so you can tune in that um, there's a Gwendolyn Brooks, um, Gwendolyn Brooks, uh, um, conference going on presently and it's oh, free hi. and it's out of Chicago and uh uh-huh. and let me um uh, let me find the details for you just a second. Um Sister Bisola told me and um and I can't do two things at once. So I can't, I can't okay, well, I have my uh, but I registered <laughs> but it's the twenty third it's the Gwendolyn Brooks Center for Black Literature and Creative Writing at Chicago State University. Mm-hmm. And it's the twenty third Gwendolyn Brooks Black Writers Conference. And um, it's a virtual experience, and it says quite a long, quite a time for loving Black love in the new century, and it's um, today and tomorrow, 
and uh, it's free. And um, I will, um, I'll forward this to you, um, uh, oh, Sheba, right now. Yes. And uh, and for those who are interested, I will put this um, in the description of the um, of this program, so you can join as well right now. <laughs> wonderful, so I'm sending wonderful. This to you, Yay. Sheba, and uh, thank you so and much. I look forward. To, yeah, yeah, and uh, you can tell me what I miss because. Um, I uh I got to teach a class at ten o'clock in twenty minutes. <laughs> okay. Well, you take care, and, and I know that your students are in for a treat. Okie dokie. All right, and I wanted to know if you could give our audience a way to you know to follow your work and to be in touch. Um. Wow, I'm going to send them to the It's About Time uh, DPP dot com website and. Okay. Uh, and because right now I'm uh, I'm sort of uh, silent. I'm uh, I'm still unpacking, so <laughs> I haven't I haven't decided how I'm gonna uh, still interact except through the uh, except through the archives. I know that uh, Billy accepts articles from Old Panthers about uh, what they're doing and, and short biographies and stuff like that. So I think I have one up there. And um, so, yeah, go to It's About Time. And on the About Time, there's two T's.dtp.com. And you okay. can see a lot of uh, uh, Black Panther history curated by a Black Panther, which is uh, a rank and file Black Panther, which is really important. So it's curated from that point of view. Right. Okay. All right. Excellent. Excellent. Well, you take good care, Sister Sheba, and it's always a pleasure to speak to you. All right. Thanks so much, Wanda. You have a lovely day. You too. Peace okay, and love. Bye-bye. Bye. Mine. Bye-bye. Bye. So we are going to... Um, I have an interview with um, Stanley Nelson uh, talking about Vanguard of the Revolution, um, which is his film on the Black Panther Party. And I haven't listened to it in a very long time. So I'm thinking that might be a nice way to um, close the show out. And, uh, yeah, so enjoy. (laughs) The African Sisters Media Network. We are joined uh, in the studio by director Stanley Nelson, and he's been a frequent, we're really happy to say, um, guest on the air. And this weekend he is in the San Francisco Bay Area for the opening of his film here, The Black Panthers, Vanguard of the Revolution. Good morning, and thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you so much. Wow, wow. I mean, this film is just such a wonderful document and testimony of this great movement. Um and within it, um, there are so many stories that I hadn't been aware of, you know, particularly what happened with uh, Huey P. Newton and Eldridge Cleaver. That is like, wow, really central. And and then the running of um, Bobby Seale for mayor of Oakland and Elaine Brown for city council, just sort of how that came about is really interesting. And then the way you juxtapose what happened with the Panther 21 and, and what happened um, – uh, in in Los Angeles, was that? I'm trying to remember. Was that? Were those the ones that were like closely related? In regards to time, 
Um, I need to look at my notes. Uh, or am I misspeaking? I'm trying to remember. Uh, yeah, I mean, the the murder of Fred Hampton and the L.A. shootout were right. four days apart. That's the one. Right, right. Yeah. So let me let me introduce you properly, and then we can just talk about, wow, how you did this. This is like, oh, my God. I mean, Freedom Summer was awesome, like last year <laughs> when we last spoke. And, and then now you have this. Oh my goodness, it's opus and and right on, you know, the you know, on the sort of the uh next year is the fiftieth anniversary of the Black Panther Party and so to have this film sort of enter the discussion, wow, what a what a great, you know, preview of the wonderful conversation that this is opening up, you know, for the coming year. Uh you are an Emmy Award winning documentary filmmaker. MacArthur Genius Fellow and a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, you have been awarded the National Humanities Medal by President Obama in August of last year. The Black Panthers' Vanguard of the Revolution is your eighth film to premiere at Sundance Film Festival. You are the director of 12 documentary features, including Freedom Summer, Freedom Riders, Jonestown, The Life and Death of a People's Temple, and The Murder of Emmett Till. And and we can't leave out um, The uh, Soldiers Without Swords, um, the, you know, the film you made about the um, uh, the black press. That was phenomenal. I mean, that was like, they should put that in this list here. <laughs> <laughs> you are also the executive director of Firelight Films and co-founder of Firelight Media, which provides technical support to emerging documentarians. With multiple industry awards to your credit, you are acknowledged as one of the premier documentary filmmakers working today. Uh, You are currently in production on Tell Them We Are Rising, the story of historically black colleges and universities, uh, which is the second in a series of three films uh, you will direct as part of a new multi-platform PBS series entitled America Revisited. So, again, welcome. Yeah, thank you so much. It's great to be on the air with you. Yeah, so this film, my goodness, um, change was coming to America and the fault lines could no longer be ignored. Cities were burning, Vietnam was exploding, and disputes raging over equality and civil rights. A new revolutionary culture was emerging, and it sought to drastically transform the system. The Black Panther Party for Self-Defense would, in a short time, put itself at the vanguard of that change. And, yeah, just talk about, you know, seven years ago, you write that you set out to tell the story of the rise and fall of the Black Panther Party. And a little-known history, you weren't just going to just tell us what we know and show us archival footage, but you weave archival footage. I mean, I'm thinking, wow, I mean, to look at Julian Bond, to, you know, right before he passed, you know, like, not right before he passed, but, you know, he's alive in your film. <laughs> and and then and then to juxtapose that interview, your interview with one when he was asked about the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense and what he said as a younger younger man, about, you know, well, you know, it, it might be possible that I might be a member, but, you know, uh, definitely uh, philosophically, you know, they are right in line with what I believe. So, you know, those kind of moments were just, oh, my God. And then the Freeman brothers, oh, my goodness. You know, uh, Ronald and Roland Freeman talking about Los Angeles and how they had to leave their families 
so that their families would be safe when they joined this this revolutionary movement. I mean, you know, Kathleen Cleaver, Erica Huggins, I mean, it's just like, and, you know, there's wonderful stories about the women in the party. Oh, my goodness. Okay, let me let you talk. <laughs> um, well, you know, I, I started the film seven years ago, um, uh, thinking that uh, there really hadn't been a kind of uh, comprehensive look at the rise and fall of the Black Panther Party. That you know, the Black Panthers had been part of other films, or there have been films about individual Black Panthers, but there really hadn't been a, a, a history. Something they tried to pull together, you know, the, the Black Panther story. So that's what we set out to do, um, and just very uh, grateful to have done it and get it out there, and and get people to see it. So you are, you know, definitely um, have, have been telling stories for a long time. So this particular, um, you know, to tell this story, uh, were there any, I mean, any challenges? Um, did you, I mean, how how did you how did you have to shift to enter this particular world and worldview? And just sort of talk about so how do you how do you went about it? Um, you know, sort of you know, sort of laying out the story and figuring out, you know, sort of how to start. How do you start? Well, one of the things that, that, that I wanted to do in this film was to uh, talk to uh, a lot of people who were what was part of call, what was called the rank and file. You know, those were like the everyday Panthers, you know, not, not the... Not, not not the the ones who had you know you'd see on TV or had real positions in the party, but just were you know the everyday Panthers, the rank and file. Because I thought their story hadn't been told. A lot of times, you know, stories are told from the top down. So we hear about the leaders, but we don't hear about the people who are you know working the trenches every day. So you know, we went about trying to find as many uh, Panthers as we possibly could to talk to. We wanted to talk to people. You know, um, men and women, and and people on the on the west coast, and people on the east coast, and people in, you know in the middle, and try to you know get an idea of uh, who they were, you know why they joined the Panthers, why they stayed in the Panthers, what they did day to day in the Panthers, and then why they eventually left the, the party. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the things we really wanted to do. The other thing we we wanted to do is to make sure that we had um, uh, some people from the other side. You know, we wanted to interview police officers. We wanted to interview former FBI agents, uh, uh, informers, you know, um, those kind of things, and, and really try to get a, a rounded picture uh, of the Panther movement and, uh, you know, how it was thought of, uh, you know, back in, in, in that day. Um, and uh, that, that's how we started, you know, trying to round, round up uh, as many different people to interview as we could find, but also at the same time, you know, we're looking for footage, we're looking for still pictures, and and we're looking and listening to a lot of music um, to to try to round out the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the music is definitely a central character in the work. Um, I mean, it's just it's just just really really beautiful. Um, you know. Um, you know, starting out, I mean, the opening of the film, um, just sort of setting the uh, the stage, you know, with the story of the elephant, and then moving into, you know, the Soul Train <laughs> um, uh, program, and then the song, and then, you know, sort of, it, it just was really lovely. And then the conclusion, you know, with Gil Scott Heron, uh, you know, Winter in America, um it just just was just it's just classic. It's just and then it's so such a beautiful, beautiful film, you know, with the uh 
the stills and um, just sort of looking at, at the, I mean, because the Black Panther Party has had a look. I mean, it sort of changed the way black people were perceived. I mean, black James Brown talked about black is beautiful, but the Black Panther Party, that's what you think about when you think about the beauty of blackness, um, not just a physical beauty either, because there was a, like a love there. And so, and and then the way you weave in the ten, you know, the ten part, the ten uh, point program, in the midst of you know what's going on, and the way you tell the story of, of Fred Hampton, uh, and you mentioned you know Informer, that was that was really magnificent. So, I mean, I know you have a you know a team. <laughs> so, so tell us about you know how does one how does one make this kind of film in comparison to some of the other films you've made? Um, was this one uh, did it offer its own special challenges um, and rewards? You know for that work. Well, I mean, I, I think the Panthers are, are a bit different from you know uh, a lot of the other films that I've made. You know, right before this, we made a film uh, called Freedom Summer about uh, the summer and, and voter registration in Mississippi in 1964. I think one of the things that that's interesting about the Panthers is that, you know, everybody or, or a lot of people have their own Panther story that they know. You know, they have their own Panther mythology that they come to the Panther story with already. And that's very different, you know, from from Freedom Freedom Summer or Freedom Riders or even Emmett Till, you know, that, uh, you know, so it's interesting, you know, in in showing the film around, you know, people are, are always kind of, well, what about this? Well, why didn't you talk about Angela Davis? Well, what about this? Well, what about that? You know, why didn't you do this? And and so there's there's a lot of that. And I think one of the the big things for us in production was, you know, um, again, it took uh, years to get the money and years to get this made. And, and you know, I think finally. You know, we decided, okay, we're just we're gonna tell the story the best way that we can, and we're gonna go with it. And and you know, everybody is not gonna be overjoyed with it, but if we can please the vast majority of people uh, with the film, then we should just go for it. We can kind of, you know, um, kind of uh, tiptoe around the story anymore. We just have to kind of dive in and, and and make the film. And I think that that has really worked for us. And you know, the reaction to the film has been just overwhelmingly positive. You know, from all fronts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and you know, another central player in the film is is um, J. Edgar Hoover and COINTELPRO, and you know, the way you tell that story, oh my goodness, um, is you know Claiborne Carson's you know voice there as well. It's just as as you know, narrating um, just sort of or you know, uh, you know, putting an ashe to you know the evidence. It's just really magnificent. Could you talk about, uh, you know, the COINTELPRO and the New York 21 and then, you know, sort of J. Edgar Hoover's, you know, intent, you know, with regards to, you know, dismembering this, this magnificent uh, organization? Yeah, well, I, I think that, you know, J. Edgar Hoover had a special... Uh, kind of place uh, in his in his brain for for African Americans and you know the Panthers kind of you know tipped him over the edge in some way and he, and he set out to destroy the Panthers. He said that the Panthers were uh, the greatest internal threat to the security of the United States. You know, which kind of meant that they were public enemy number one as an organization. He put you know uh, uh, resources and 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 manpower. 
you know, because there were no women in the FBI at that point. It was manpower. He put manpower behind, uh, you know, um, destroying the Panthers and did everything that he possibly could to destroy the Panthers. I think that one of the things that that, uh, is amazing and comes across in the film is that, you know, Jagger Hoover and the FBI also documented their efforts. So, you know, um, we were able to get the documents, you know, where they talk about, you know, um, do anything you can, um, you know, to destroy the Panthers. Just, uh, you know, don't let it get back to the FBI. There's another uh, memo, and this was used in the film, where he says, you know, we have to pit, you know, Huey Newton against Eldridge Cleaver and Eldridge Cleaver against Huey Newton. They go as far as to say, you know, we have to figure out how to pit spouse against spouse. You know, so they did that by writing fake letters and having, you know, women uh, call up, you know, wives of Panthers and pretend like they were their girlfriends. You know, anything that they could do to, to kind of undermine the Panthers. But I think also what, what you have to take into account is that, uh, you know, the, organ, uh, the, the organization that, that – uh, that the FBI started, or the program the FBI started, you know, COINTELPRO, which, you know, stood for Counterintelligence Program. COINTELPRO at that time was completely secret. So nobody knew that the FBI was doing any of this. You know, this is a, at a time where, you know, there's a show on TV, you know, the FBI, you know, it's, you know, the FBI thought it was this, you know, great thing. And, and you know, behind the scenes, they're going after the the, the Panthers with everything that they've got. The other thing I think about that whole piece of the story that you have to understand is that, you know, the Panthers were basically, you know, teenagers. I mean, I think the average age is like 19 or 20. So, you know, these are these are teenagers who, you know, are are, are uh, being um, targeted, you know, by the FBI, you know, with, with, with any kind of uh, dirty trick or anything that they can possibly do, including riddling the, the Panthers with informers and, you know, FBI um uh, informers, um, you know, all, all over the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you, you know, because of because of your, um, you know, your filmology, and you've, you've, um, I don't know, sort of where were you when the Black Panther Party movement for self defense uh, was organized, um, and had you ever thought about becoming a member? Uh, uh, your you know, your goal you write as a as a filmmaker, uh, is to try and give the viewer a sense of um what it has meant to be black in America and consider this within our contemporary context. And then we think about the Black Panther um part of the self defense, um, you know, nearly a half a century later and you write and, and we see, you know, what they stood for then is still necessary now. So I was wondering, um, sort of, uh, where were you <laughs> when um, the Black Panther Party uh, movement um, uh, developed, and, and what were your thoughts at that time, you know, uh, 50 years ago? Well, you know, I was 15 or so when the Panthers came into being in 1966. Uh, I was living in New York City in, in, in Manhattan, and... Um, you know, I was intrigued, just like so many other people, with the Panthers. I mean, you know, they were they were fascinating. They were so different from anything that we had seen before. You know, um, the the aggressiveness of of of, of them. Uh, you know, that they were so young that they, um, 
you know, had this look, you know, uh, with the black leather jackets and the berets and the afros and the sunglasses that, you know, that that, that just looked so cool, and that they were, you know, confronting. They were, they were confronting things. I mean, they were very confrontational. We hadn't seen, you know, um, you know, black people, w- w- you know, w- with this kind of confrontational attitude. You know, um, the attitude of, of of the mainline civil rights movement, you know, was 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 very kind of um, you know uh, reasoned and and thoughtful and, and and calm. You know, like we are going to be nonviolent and we are going to be calm in the face of your craziness. That was the attitude in some ways of the civil rights movement. But the Panthers were saying, you know, their, their attitude was more like, no, this is who we are. And, you know, we know that there's going to be a number of people who are going to not like this. They're going to hate it. They're going to hate us. You know, white people and black people are going to going to hate this. But there's going to also be people who are who are attracted to us and, 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 and who and those are the people who we want. You know, we, we, we don't care if we lose, you know, Ninety percent of the population, but you know, you know, we, we can make it with ten percent, twenty percent, thirty percent. That's a, that's enough for us to to make a movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, did you ever think of of becoming a member? Because you you were certainly like within that age range. <laughs> uh, you know, I I kind of uh, was around and 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 thought of it. You know, um, I remember a friend of mine and I. You know, after school, we went over to the Panther office in Harlem and. We got there, and we were like, uh, I don't think so. Um, but I think that that you have to understand too that that one of the the things that happened was early on in the Panther movement, the repression started coming down on the Panthers, you know, and so it, it was, you know, to join the Panthers and to be part of it was a real commitment, because you know there were there were raids and people's phones were tapped and uh, you know there were informers and and as People started to realize that it made it much, much more difficult to recruit people to the Panthers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I just think about um, uh, the scene where um, you know that big, big shootout in in Los Angeles. I'm like, wow, they're shooting. I was just looking at them like they're shooting, and there's film crew there. Like they have witnesses, and they're just just shooting into this building. I'm like, oh my goodness. And uh, yeah, um, yeah. Well, that well, that that's one of the the the, the major scenes in, in the film is the the shootout with the uh, L.A. police where they raid uh, the Panther headquarters in L.A. And one of the things that makes it so you know fascinating is is that the Panthers had put sandbags around the inside walls of, of their headquarters because this came four days after Fred Hampton was killed in a raid, so they were expecting to be raided. They also put dirt in the in between the outside and the inside walls. They had poured dirt in the walls and you know, they basically made the uh the Panther office a uh, a fortress, you know, with with guns gun ports to shoot out of and the police are shooting in. And because it's so well fortified, you know, that this this gun battle goes on between the police and the Panthers for five hours which allows the news to get there, the news crews to get there. And there's um, incredible footage of the gun battle. And in the film, we have uh, two Panthers who were, in, who were inside 
um, and and shooting out shooting out uh, you know from the headquarters. And I think there's three cops that we have who who are outside and talk about you know the raid and 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 their shooting in. And uh, one of the things that's really interesting is that this is the first time us. This is the the first SWAT team was formed in L.A. and this is the first time the SWAT team um, delivered what they called a high-risk warrant. So it was kind of like the first real action of the SWAT team. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. And just, um, I don't remember the name of um, the Black Panther who, um, besides um, uh, Ronald, not Ronald, but, um, uh, yeah, Ronald Freeman, I'm trying to think of the role. Yeah, Ronald Freeman, who was inside, and he talked about how he was shot, so he couldn't use one side, you know, his I think his right side was shot, so he couldn't use that side. But just sort of what they did, you know, when the tear gas came in. Um, but what I really, really loved was when, um, and I don't know if you remember the name of, of, of the other panther. Wayne Farr. Yeah, yeah. And how you were talking about how free he felt. I just loved that. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of the moment in the film. Um in some ways that the film works up to and it's just an incredible statement that you know he says he felt free you know being inside this building um where where basically they're trapped they're scared to give up because you know um little bobby hutton another former panther was killed you know, as he tried to give up, you know, you're scared to even try to give up, um, and you're trapped, you're running out of bullets, and, you know, he says he felt free. It's a, it's an amazing moment. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. And and then you think about, um, uh, you know, the 10-point the ten, the program, and, uh, and then you think about, uh, you know, the whole battle of, of people of African descent, you know, in this nation and in Western culture, um, post-enslavement has been about, you know, human rights, you know, freedom, justice, um, democracy, you know, if it exists, it should be applicable to everyone. And so that moment in, in this film itself is sort of like, yeah, when's it going to happen? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. when's it going to happen? It's like 2015, October. When's it going to happen? Um, well, I think what the Panthers prove and show is, and hopefully part of the meaning of the film, is you know it, it'll it, it, it'll happen. Um, uh, you know, when we get, when we make it happen, you know, when we keep pushing and 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 make it happen, that's the only way change comes. You know, it's not going to come as a gift. It has to come from us pushing and, and forcing change. Yeah, yeah, and and then the shift, um, you know, when when um, QEP Newton is released, and and even though it's not necessarily um, explored, you know, um, in its entirety, you know, sort of the QEP Newton that comes out of out of prison, you know, we see him as as a as a, uh, a wounded person, you know, mm-hmm. because of that experience in prison. And we think about, you know, you know, and then at the end you have in the credits, you know, letting us know that, you know, that so many Black Panther Party uh, members are still being held as political prisoners behind bars. And uh, and then since you've made the film, there are people who have, you know, you know that are no longer with us um, that have died uh, because of, I mean, you know, all of this affects one's, um, you know, not just psyche, but also body. I mean, you know, they're soldiers. So it's like wow, um, that's that's really a wonderful um, uh, feature of of the work as well. 
Oh, thank you. I, I, I think that you know it, it's important to. It was important for us to 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 end the film. The last card on the film is that you know there there's still Panthers in jail um, from what happened almost 50 years ago, and I think the thing to 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 know is that you know these things happen and and they they these people these people were teenagers you know and. And they now they've been in jail. You know, um, Eddie Conway was just released in Baltimore. Who was in jail for 44 years. You know, and and they were also, you know, a lot of them were set up by the FBI. It wasn't, you know, the FBI. You know, would have uh, agents, provocateurs, who would, you know, arrange for the Panthers to get guns and and, and spur them on these, you know, 18 and 17 year old kids, you know, to to commit acts, uh, criminal acts. That then you know the, the the local police would be informed about, and they could raid the Panthers. And you know that 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 that, that basically you know it, it, it's time to, to to free these people. You know they've they've been in jail long enough. Um, yeah, the, there was a, the, a West Coast um, conference for um, prisoner, former prisoner um, human rights uh, just uh, maybe uh, two weeks ago uh, here in Oakland. And um, and uh, Teko Odinga, who was just released uh, last year, um, was here in town, you know, talking about, um, you know, 40 years, 40 years, my goodness, right. yeah, behind bars. Um, and... Um, yeah, and then we think about, you know, other folks still languishing um behind bars and yeah, and the, and also the folks that are in exile, you know, like um you know, uh, brother uh, Pete O'Neill um in, in Tanzania, we think about yeah, it's just it's just really, really something, you know, the the battle is still continuing in, in a, on a lot of levels. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, as I said, it's 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 time that uh you know, at some point, you have to be compassionate. That's part of life, I think. Yeah, but then you think about government. Government is not necessarily a human entity, you know, just like corporations are. Well, hopefully, if corporations are, then hopefully the government is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, in our in our closing minutes, I just want to know if you could talk a little bit about the wonderful soundtrack and, and if you could also tell us about, you know, your team, your creative team, because you all are magnificent. Um, well, the soundtrack, you know, all of the music um, on the soundtrack, you know, I, I selected personally. Um, one of the things that we wanted to do was to give a sense of those times and, and, and uh, you know, the fact that there were all these, all these songs about revolution or, or songs, you know, like Black Is, Black Is Me, Black Is You, Am I Black Enough For You, or all all of that kind of music that, that people were hearing, you know, every day on the radio, and that this was part of that time, you know, and, and uh, it was just this... As, as Clay Carson says in, in the beginning of the film, this was kind of a revolutionary time. You know, this was going on all over the world, but you know we really wanted the music to kind of give a, a bed of that, but but also to you know just have this kind of rousing score. You know that that you know my memory of those times and my memory of of the Panthers was a you know a, a very positive time. You know a lot of times people are like you know uh, well the '60s must have been horrible since there was so much protest and. You know, um, but no, it was it was a very very positive time, partially because of the protest. So um, you know, we really wanted to, that to be a, a feeling that 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 you got uh, from from the film. So we really spent a lot of time 
uh, with the music. Um, and, you know, my team, I've just been fortunate to be able to work with some, some great people. Uh, Lorenz Grant, who was a co-producer of the film, who worked on Freedom Riders uh, with me, and we worked on another film that she directed about Jesse Owens, and Algernon Tunsil, who was the editor, who edited uh, Freedom Summer and was a co-editor of Freedom Riders and co-editor of Jonestown and some other stuff that we did. Um, you know, I've just been able to, to work with, you know, uh, a lot of great uh, great people on, on the film. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um wondering, do you ever get sort of starstruck when, you, when you're, like, interviewing people that you've admired from a distance for so long? It's like, oh, my God, I'm actually talking to this person. Like, do you ever have those mm-hmm. moments? No. It's funny that you say that because no, I, I don't get those moments while I'm while I'm filming. You know, I I get those maybe after it's done. You know, after we after we after we turn off the camera, then I kind of don't know what to say. I'm like, oh my god, but you know, I'm, this is Kathleen Cleaver. I used to be in love with her when I was 14. You know, <laughs> you know, but you know, um, while while I'm actually filming, you know, I have a job to do, and I'm I'm very focused on you know the interview and and, and getting what we need. Um, but so. It, it's after the cameras go off that that I have a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well, congratulations on this wonderful film, The Black Panthers: Vanguard of the Revolution. And you're gonna be at screenings um, today, uh, which is opening uh, at Landmark Opera Plaza. Uh, the first screening that you're gonna be at is the 4:15. That's gonna be super awesome. And then at 7 p.m. you're gonna be at the same location. And then you're coming over to the East Bay Piedmont Theater. Um, as well, and uh, oh no, that's are you going to be at those too? Oh no, that's tomorrow. Yeah, I'll be yeah. at Piedmont all day tomorrow, and then at Shattuck on uh, Sunday, right? And San Rafael, I believe it is Sunday evening. Yeah. But you know, those are all in the paper. But also, if you visit our website, which is theblackpanthers.com, we got a great website name, theblackpanthers.com. Uh, you can find out all the screening information, and the trailer for the film is there, and you can. Click on a little button for tweeting and and well, Facebook and all that other good stuff is all there. Um, but if you go to theblackpanthers.com, it has a whole schedule. And you know, oh, uh, the other thing is not only me, but we have you know, uh, Emery Douglas is going to be at a screening. The great Panther artist Erica Huggins is going to be there. Other Panthers will be at other screenings. You know, over the weekend. So it's not just me. It's, uh, it's Panthers and other guests that will be speaking. And uh, we're really looking forward to people coming out. Um, the one thing I should say is you should call the theater and get your tickets in advance because, you know, in other cities we've tended to sell out, and I, you know, I can't see how it's not going to do well here in the Bay. Oh yeah, it should do very well here in the Bay since this is the birthplace of the Black Panther. Yeah, no, it should it should be great. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, wow. Well, again, congratulations and. Um, yeah, looking forward to seeing you in the theaters and, and looking forward to um, other conversations, you know, when you're, you know, the work uh, about the, uh, 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 the the black, historically black colleges and universities has been, it to be awesome. Uh, well, yeah, we're just getting started, so ho- hopefully we'll, we'll we'll be able to, you know, make a film that people want to see. Um, but again, thank you so much for your support, you know, and um and, yeah, I hope just people come out and see the film. You know, the other thing is hopefully 
we've tried to make a very, very, very entertaining film, and, and hopefully we've done that. Oh, yes, it's very entertaining. And, um, well, I, I notice, I think all of your films are end, end up on PBS. Is this one going to be there as well? Is it gonna be- yeah, the, the film will be on, on PBS in February. Um, but I, I really encourage people to see it on the big screen because oh, it's course. just it's overwhelming when you see it there. Right, right. Well, super. Well, you have a wonderful weekend, and again, thank you so much for the work that you do. All right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right. Take care. You too. Peace and blessings. Bye-bye. So we were speaking to director Stanley Nelson about his latest film, which is simply fantastic. And, again, you definitely should get your tickets. Uh, he's at Landmark Opera Plaza. That's where the film is, is screening um, today, October 2nd. And it's also opening at Piedmont Theaters, and he's going to be there tomorrow, Saturday, um, all day. And, and then on Sunday, it's, uh, he's going to be at, uh, at Shattuck Cinemas during the day, time screenings, and then he's going to head on over to San Rafael uh, to the uh, Smith Raphael Film Center uh, on on October 2nd. So, uh, excuse me, not October 2nd, uh, October 4th. So the whole weekend, he's going to be around for a couple of days. That should be simply marvelous. So go visit uh, the website, the Black Panthers, um, yeah, theblackpanthers.com. All righty, so I'm going to play an interview, um, an older interview with Erica Huggins um, uh, when another film was screening uh, in the Bay. And... Um, I can find it. <laughs> I always do that. Um, I, I mentioned something and then I don't have it all ready to go, darn it. Um, so um, let's see. Um, well, you know, I have another interview with uh, Emery Douglas. Let's play that because we have a little bit more time. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll catch up with Erica some other time. So enjoy. And then we have an, an interview with um some of the uh, choreographers and dancers in um, uh, the trolley dances, uh, which is going to be happening, I think, on October 17th in San Francisco. So we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. Wow. Well, it's always so wonderful to speak to you, Emery. Um, You're so generous with your time, considering you are so busy. So um, uh, right before we went on the air, you were saying that you're going to Sweden because there are Panthers in Sweden? Uh, yeah, they come pr- p- pentaros, pentaros, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah, so. Wow, wow, that's amazing. So you're going to be um, having an art exhibit there. What are you going to be doing in well, Sweden? Well, I'm invited there for five for five days, mm-hmm. and I will be uh, doing presentations uh, mm-hmm. and with my uh, art and and also speaking. I have a big festival mm-hmm. that they do each year. I think. They've been in existence for a while because I know Bobby Steele was there last year. Oh, okay. And, but I just recently found out when I looked on my Facebook and they had sent me a message. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but So they put in on this conference, and they have a lot of young hip-hop uh, artists come from around the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have uh, uh, Dead Prayers, M1, coming mm-hmm. uh, to be a part of it this this year. And so they wanted me, they wanted me to come to... Uh, uh, to be a part of it, and they have, I think they have chapters in the north and the south of Sweden. Wow. So I'll be traveling around for three or four days and doing some stuff at the universities and with students, art students, hmm. and the uh, and the activists there. 
Wow, wow. Yeah, because people know, a lot of people probably know that uh, the Black Panther Party, you know, while it was started, you know, in Oakland, it actually is an international, it was an international organization. Um, but it sounds as if these Black Panther um, uh, chapters, um, offshoots, are they still active? Are they still doing things? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, they, this, this one has a, uh, a whole documentary. Mm. Out about their about their struggles, you know. The, mm-hmm. You know, with Sweden, the, the that progressive uh, uh, representative, state representative, government representative, who was assassinated over there. Mm-hmm. Well, I think they got a, a documentary. I think he was. They were aligned close with him during that time. Mm-hmm. And so, and in their documentary, they start off with that history and some of the struggles they're going with. These are dealing with the oppressed. This, you know, they explain to you that what you see on. News and what you get about Sweden mm-hmm. in this liberal country just does not doesn't reflect that when you go there, mm-hmm. you know, because you got the people of color and uh, people who live there, the Arabs, different ones from different parts of other parts of the world who uh, live there, who are very poor, living in very oppressed conditions, you know, and what have you. Mm. So they're they're battling right now for those, you know, for their basic human rights. Wow, wow, yeah, because, um, you know, I think of Sweden. Uh, Sweden's one of those countries that just seems like everything is good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I never I never heard anything negative about Sweden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you have the party line. People think the same thing about America, right? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Wow, wow. So you've been all over the world. You're just always traveling. So I remember... You sent us this wonderful footage. Um, you were on a silent march with the Zapatistas. Um, was that in December? Yeah, well, the silent march took two days before I got there, but on New Year's Eve, uh, I went to, the first time they had allowed this to happen is that I was at a conference the last time I went. The first time I went, I was there for an exhibit uh, called The Encounter, mm-hmm. Black Panther Party, uh, Zapatista. Mm. I wanted to show the uh the similarities through art, what how art was empowering uh, for both movements and some of the similarities. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second time when I went there, uh, I was invited by the representative of the Zapatista school there, indigenous uh, school there for indigenous. Mm-hmm. And they have this conference there every year. I think this is about the third one called Reflection and Analysis. And they have indigenous people come from all over the world in different parts of South America, plus other people come from Europe, everywhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, they wanted to ask me if I would do a 20-minute presentation on my involvement with the Black Panther Party. Right. So I went there for that. But two days after that march, the march t- took two days before the silent march. And from what, from the understanding I got from talking to a uh, representative of the Zapatistas and people who were knowledgeable of them, mm-hmm. who know them, uh, the march was taking place in five different uh, towns, which the Zapatista controlled. And what they had got heard, uh, got got whiff of, is that the old government, which is the new government, meaning that it was in power for about seventy-five years before it got kicked out and then got reelected recently mm-hmm. back into power. Well, they were making these deals with these ranchers to take back land from Zapatista, from the uh, and from the uh, peasants. And so what happened is they heard about it, and they wanted to show that they was a force. Mm-hmm. So they had 10,000 Zapatistas in each town, not just one town, but each town, uh, march, a silent march to each of those towns. Yeah. Yeah, to show that they were still there, and they are still a force. 
Mm-hmm. And when I told people, tell people about where you, I went to Chiapas and hooked up with the Zapatistas, they say they still exist. Oh yeah, they exist. <laughs> they just they just uh, got a whole another way of, of of doing, of going about dealing with their the issues that they're confronted with, mm-hmm. you know, the land rights and stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you have people who come there from different parts of the world who are interested in that history and the way that they do things. Yeah. Mhm. So you have a, quite a bit of that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And and you've been. Um, uh, traveling to Australia um, yes. quite a bit, and you know, going way back. I mean, you have like a continuous relationship with the uh, the Black Panthers of of um, of Australia and New Zealand, and um, and then yeah, I'm you... going back to New Zealand once I leave uh, Sweden. I come back for about a day, <laughs> and I head to New Zealand for about uh, till about almost the whole about to, to the latter part of May. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'll go there too. I'm working on it. I'll be going with Rigo 23. The oh, yeah. We'll be traveling together. Mm-hmm. We're going there to do a co- collaboration with the, a Maori artist there named mm. Wang Yule. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so nice. it, uh, yeah. And, mm. and uh, I got a lot of friends who are waiting there for me to get back. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah. Right back oh, that's cool. A lot of friends there, Maori friends. Mm hmm. The islands, yes. Yeah, the Maori people are just phenomenal. I mean, you know, when you think about warriors, it's like, oh my goodness. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then, you know, your work with, um, you know, the Aboriginal Aboriginal artist, you know, Richard Bell, um, mm-hmm. in Australia, and uh, and then I was reading that you um you were in Beirut um at the yeah, Lebanon. Yeah, I was in Beirut, Lebanon, mm-hmm. art center there. Yeah. What's it like there? Well, uh, it was, uh, you got to, I was invited for 10 days, and I was invited, that was the time when uh, you had the, uh, when they had put out the word that she shouldn't travel. Yeah. So I, I said I was going, you go there, it's a beautiful place. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, they have you thinking this place is uh, destroyed, and you know, these are people with horns in the head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's a beautiful place. Of course, they do have the uh, fragile government. There. Mm-hmm. And they have a system of where they keep together different uh, people, Christians and Muslims and whole bit are, uh, are in certain positions in regards to the cohesiveness of things there. Mm-hmm. But you do know that there are other forces there uh, for security purposes and what have you. And uh, so it was a beautiful uh, uh, while I was there. I, I gave the presentation mm-hmm. uh, at the uh, at the uh, Beirut Art Center. Then you had a lot of progressive activists, some who had even Worked at uh, Freedom Archives. Really? Uh, yeah, was there. Nice. The guy had to come up to me and say he had just left. He worked with Claude Marks and mm-hmm. Freedom Archives. And some of them do travel. And so what happened is that um, after some uh, folks invited me out. I, I was invited out. Uh, I was showed around the town. They talked about the how the workers there who come from India, Africa, and uh, different places, how they're treated, mm-hmm. used by those who... Uh, bring them there to work for them, and they now let them out the house and what have you. And they just had had some had commit suicide, abuse them, but they said they had just recently been at that time uh, the first conviction of the abuse. So they were where they were kind of uh, hoping that that trend would continue mm-hmm. in regards to that. And and so you got you didn't just show you the symbolism and the, the, the on the walls the street artists who protest against those kinds of things, and they would explain to me what the wording was and, and was saying and stuff like that. 
Mm-hmm. I went to uh, some of they have uh, these collective. Uh, one guy who I think he was communist. They said who Arab who was communist who had a property where he turned it over to community organization. And where I went and visited uh, different people there at that community organization. They took me to even to uh, a Arab party, mm-hmm. and also went to a uh, they had a, pl- a place where activists hang out. Mm-hmm. And went there, and uh, they took me into one room, and they had all these pictures of Che Guevara, all the revolutionaries on the wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bray and the whole bit. Mm-hmm. I, I did a presentation there, and they had people who come from the local camps, Palestinian camps, who came to invite, who uh, came to meet me, mm-hmm. as well as I did a workshop for three three days, where I met uh, different artists who were there who came from different backgrounds in art and what have you, who wanted to be a part of the workshop, which mm-hmm. is very good. The last day, a couple of days, I had to, go, I was able to go to the uh, one of the camps, uh, the mm-hmm. camps where the Palestinians are here, mm-hmm. are, refugees are. Yeah. And first, uh, what happened is that young lady there who I met, her grandfather came to the presentation. He was a PLO, and he worked it out for me to go, but you have to go through the military, Lebanese military first, so we had to go through the base and get all that. If you're not a citizen, if you're a citizen, then you can go directly there. If they allow you in, they allow you in, because the, the uh, refugee Palestinians control the camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, I, I was able to go and uh, went there, and uh, you, you got on a, 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 this particular camp, you have over 80,000 people on less than a square mile. Mm. And it's, it's, uh, it's rough, really rough. They say that the, uh, they try to make it normal. They can't build, they can't uh, build any place, not supposed to build any further than about 10 bricks high. Mm. But over the years of being in there, they've built up to about two stories. Nothing has been said because they ain't got no choice what they're going to do. And, that's, uh, you know, you, you have this kiosk in the front where you come through in and out and stuff. So, and they... Because the fact that they must, they, once the lady spoke to them and they let us right on through because they, they got the word that who, we were coming. Hmm. And so um, we uh, got there and we seen that whole, uh, you know, going to school, the kids go to school, they have to go in school in the shifts because there's not enough time. They have a UN school there for the whole bit. Uh, you go into like these maze to go these alleyways and back and forth to get through to the, to the main streets uh, and stuff like that. But they try to make it normal, you know. We wouldn't, we we couldn't go too far into there, mm-hmm. and when we were there, because of the time limit. But at the same time, there had uh, been a conflict in there between some of the more radical elements and those elements, and you could see that, and they had to resolve that. There was gunfight and stuff in there, and so, uh, but uh, so you got some of them just don't care if you, how progressive you are, if you Western, you. you 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 don't make no difference, you know. Mm-hmm. So you have those elements there, and so I, I could you could sense that the I, the people who were showing us around were security and in regards to making sure that uh, everything worked out well while we were there and nothing happened. But beyond that, it was a, a, a good visit there. You got the history. You had we met through, uh, and you have and people must understand that you have Palestinians that look just like you and I. Mm-hmm. You know, and met quite a few of them there as well. And so, um, the gentleman who was in charge of the uh, camp, 
said he hadn't left the camp when he first went there. He didn't leave the camp for seven years before mm. he left. He said they bombed it, and mm. he had where he stayed at. They bombed it. He had shows all the all the, uh, the marks and stuff on his body where mm. they had when they bombed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and during that time, then he uh, was talking to us, and he said, "Do you remember the deck of cards that Bush made?" And he, uh, we said, "I recall that, yeah." And he said that he was number ten on the deck. Mm. Yeah. So you know. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Huh. Yeah. Man, that's wow. Yeah. yeah. Um. Hmm. So yeah. They had, a, they had yeah. built a. Uh, they had showed us around what is uh, complex that they're building. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they can't buy the land. They can't have land, but they would lend the land. So they don't own anything. They can't own anything. Really? So what, yeah, no, no. If you're a refugee, you can't own anything. Hmm. You can't have no jobs. I don't care if you got a master's degree, doctor, lawyer. Mm-hmm. You cannot practice none of that, period. It's, it's, wow. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. And so what happened, they've uh, been able to build this amazing complex that they were building right on the side of the thing, about two stories, three stories. Mm-hmm. And it has gyms, it has senior uh, 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 com- complex to it. Uh, your computers, all these things, exercise, everything that you you know that you have when you go to some of these uh, these uh, complexes that deal with education, knowledge, and mm-hmm. development, health, health wise. So they they're trying to do that to uh, uh, so that they can have some kind of enormously. So when with uh, with the, with the community there, because it's so so huge. And I know we just touched the surface in regards to when I was there that day, mm-hmm. in regards to going into the infrastructure of that particular place. Right. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I was just thinking um, as we, you know, talked a little bit about your travels and, um, you know, around the world and, you know, and, and you you all, you know, you have a pretty, uh, I guess, extensive um, engagement uh, speaking and presenting here uh, in this country, um, notwithstanding you have a talk coming up this Saturday yes. at the uh, Harvey Milk Photo Center, which is really awesome, exciting um, as a part of the um, Black Power Flower Par- Power mm-hmm. Iconic Photographs by Perkle Jones and Ruth Marion um, Baroque. Baroque. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's going to be on, on Saturday again, March 9th from 1 to 4, and it's a free event, and you're going to have some of your posters for sale. And I was just thinking about how, you know, it's been um, six years since your your book, Black Panther: The Revolutionary Art of Emory Douglas, mm-hmm. was published. That you need another book. Yeah, well, they, they're working to republish this one. We're working on that right now. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's out of print. Yeah, yeah. Really? Out of print. Yeah. Both okay. both runs, the hardcover and the softcover. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's excellent. Now I'm just saying, write a whole new book because. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. At, <laughs> hopefully, at some point. Get a few more items, Im- images, and whatever mm-hmm. that would be wonderful. I would love to do that. Yeah, yeah. Let yeah. me know if you yeah. like me to help you, because yeah. you know I have no, uh, you know I can help you if you need some help, because oh, you, you know, since you're traveling, you could just send me things. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it would be great for us, because you are like documenting single-handedly from all your tours, mm-hmm. the the presence of the Black Liberation Movement throughout the world. I'm like, whoa, this is so awesome. Wow. Yeah, so I was wondering in in our um, remaining um, minutes, if you could talk for a little bit about, um, you know, your image making. Um, you know, you've um, been on the forefront, you know, from when you uh, were a member of the Black Panther Party as Minister of Culture, February 1967 to the early 1980s. Um, 
you know, your work has uh, definitely um, uh, established, you know, a critical presence, you know, with regards to the imagery that you have um, inserted into the dominant discourse. Um, you've uh, created um, a counter-narrative that is not a response to the dominant discourse and that has been leaving us out, had been leaving us out of the picture, you know, people of color uh, specifically. And um, and I really like the way that you have sort of lifted up people like the regular folks. And, and you have just a wonderful body of work presenting black women, you know, black women in all of the various roles, you know, from, you know, the nurturers and caretakers to the revolutionaries. <laughs> Um, I was wondering if you could talk um, for a minute about, you know, about this image making. And since, you know, this is Women's History Month and International Women's Day is tomorrow, you know, um, March 8th, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your image making specifically around around women. And maybe you could talk about some of the important women that sort of made this kind of, um, you know, Emory, this kind of person, this kind of artist, this kind of vision um, be what it is. Well, the, uh, the vision being what it is, it, it, particularly with the images of the women being and, and uh, being equally uh, re- reflected in the artwork mm-hmm. itself, it comes from the being inspired by what was going on in the community when you listen to the struggles and 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 uh, are going on and the pain and uh, the suffering, but you also get that sense of determination uh, to deal with that. And so that was also reflected in the artwork of of even through the pain and suffering that you may have seen in some mm-hmm. of the artwork and stuff. Mm-hmm. Of the, um, and also the uh, women in the party and their inspiration, uh, the battles and the challenges that went on in the party uh, in regards to women being arrested just like men were being arrested. Women going to prison just like men were going to prison mm-hmm. and, and upholding the party particularly taking the leadership in the party when men were uh, in prison or uh, or going to courts or, or having to do that administrative aspect of the work. All that is reflected in the uh, determination of the artwork that you see in the, in the uh, spirit of the images that you see of the drawings in the, of the women in the artwork and of, in the party. And also being uh, listening and, and hearing of liberation movements around the country around the world, around the world, excuse me, and particularly when you've seen those in uh, in Cuba and then those who are in, in sometime in Africa, in Mozambique, and uh, you see those images of who were, women were prominently a part of those liberation movements, you know, and so all that was an inspiration, uh, the, the work that came out of Vietnam and what you've seen, the the struggles of the Vietnamese, you see women in the, reflected in those in those struggles in the artwork and in the documentary. So all of that, uh, uh, and being inspired by the love of that kind of movement and for change and overcoming the obstacles and basic human rights uh, also just came a part of what I, what I do with my artwork. And my mom who was determined, you know, in her way. You know, even though she was legally blind, she still get up, fall down, get up, tell me to leave alone, she could see. Uh, I can get up by myself, those kinds of things. So it was kind of... Uh, I, that was a, a form of determination I, I, I felt, you know, in, in, my, in regards to my mother herself. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of plays, all those things, whether they consciously or unconsciously, played into the artwork itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah, and and you know, and you're a father. You know, you have a daughter, and you your grandfather. You have grandchildren, your granddaughters, and um, and you know, and and you continue, you know, to produce this this wonderful work that uh, that is aesthetically is appealing and 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 challenging intellectually. I mean, some of the imagery is like. Whoa, um, you know that looks really—that's really horrific. But then it's beautiful oh. <laughs> at the same time. And um, I was wondering how—if you could talk about sort of that that oxymoron or dichotomy, the horrifically beautiful. You know how something can be shocking, however, because you know the way you present it, we're able to enter into it. Uh, yes. Well, that's the important thing. Uh, to me, is that uh, to have people to be able to enter into it, mm-hmm. to see it, and uh, I, from the observing, from myself, historical uh, stuff that dealt with very dramatic and painful situations. Sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, the, if they're presented so uh, dramatically dark-wise, uh, color-wise, and not attractive. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may be very powerful, but people may not want to. Uh, Look into them as, as much as they would when they see something that's aesthetically attractive, color-wise, and what have you. That brings the attention to it, and they can uh, more. It's more pleasing. So it's a psycho. It's maybe a psychological, more of a psychological thing mm-hmm. in relationship to playing with the colors in a way that is a pleasing, uh, but to get the message across so that people will look at it and understand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Could you talk about your medium? Um, is it is it pen and ink? Is it pen? What what is it? Um, what do you? Well, uh, well, um, I'm com- right now. I've learned to play with the computer as well. So mm-hmm. I combination. I integrate some of my images, ink drawings, into the computer. Mm-hmm. Maybe enhance them. And the, some of the old, uh, retrospective images I've done, I've uh, integrated those in to upgrade the quality, and I can do all that stuff that you would have to do uh, uh, quite a bit of hours of labor. Uh, without the computer mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the past, and so, uh, but also, I um, uh, some of the earlier drawings were pen and ink markers, uh, you know, things like that, prefabricated materials to make textures and 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 to give depth, and to also integrating uh, collages into the artwork. Mm-hmm. All that was a part of the of the uh, essence of what the art was as it evolved. Mhm. Yeah. <laughs> Kilu um uh, Nyasha sent over um let's see, was that uh last month an image uh a recent image of yours. This was a graphic of Obama. He was yes. wrapped in a American flag on one part of his um suit coat mm-hmm. and, and then he had a mask of, of Satan. Yes. And then he in that hand had a pen in his hand and it said kill list. Mm-hmm. Um and then on the other side, you know, he looked like his regular self. <laughs> and then there was a, um, a coin yes. with a fraud under it. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. That coin was that coin was said uh, Nobel. Nobel. Oh, Nobel fraud. Oh, not peace. Yeah. No. Yes. Yes. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then the caption says it is the task of the people of the whole world to put an end to the aggression and oppression. Perpetrated by imperialism and chiefly by U.S. imperialism. Yeah, Kilo put that. Oh, Kilo, oh, that was Kilo, not yeah, you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So was the kill list? Was that when um when signed the bill when mm-hmm. it became uh, official? 
mm-hmm. uh, which was, had been known before because I had, you know, that he, that's what this was going on. Mm-hmm. I had did a thing, I think, 2010, where you had the, wor- the word war mm-hmm. made out of figures being torn apart mm-hmm. and they had a drone in the sky. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. T- yeah, so this is a... Uh, but you know, this is a, a part of the, the thing that's been originally been intensified. And now they had this, had had the discussions where they have over 100 people come together to talk with him, mm-hmm. and they make a decision on who who's going to be on the list or potentially to be uh, wiped out. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's that's amazing. That yeah. I mean, people are so public with murder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, th- what you have is when you have that too. Uh, that's the role model. Mm. In the world. You think these youngsters don't understand that? They, they, yeah. youngsters, they follow that. You mm-hmm. know, they they look at him and look at him as a role model. Right. And then they see that, and they and they see what's going on in the world. It's not like it, if they can run illegitimate uh, uh, corporation type out there in the streets. Mm-hmm. Do you, you must think they have some way to. They must have to understand they can analyze what's going on in relationship to war and killing and everything else. Mm-hmm. in the world. Right. So they follow. This is this is the new role model, mm-hmm. and how they doing it. Also, is that through sports, all you see during the halftime is saluting the military, praising the military, mm-hmm. and that's where all of, that's where all those regardless of gang banging going out there like sports. You see some of their some of their their warrior jackets and stuff is Forty ers or Raiders or mm-hmm. what have you. So they they and they that's their, that's the role model that's the one that's who's leading uh, the charge in the killing. And hmm. When they talk about killing now, like it's just uh, a common language to talk something that you talk about, and, mm-hmm. you know they pick up on that. Right. Yeah, that's so true. Um, yeah, well, there's a lovely picture of a dashing young Emory Douglas at. The Fernry Park, now known as Little Bobby Hutton Park, and you're in. It's the the beautiful. Um, it's like when you walk into the Harvey Milk Photo Center, and there it is, right in front of you. And there's a sister in the picture. Y'all are just having like a really wonderful conversation. Yeah, that was Barbara Easley. That was Donald Cox's. Oh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what happened? They took that picture at the Fernry Park, mm-hmm. and they had came up to him afterwards. I think it was his wife. Took oh, Ruth Marion took a picture. Okay. Know who, uh, what, who, uh, she knew who I was. She said, well, who is this with you? And I said, this is my sister. And what happened is that when they published the art of the photograph, mm-hmm. all these years, and they, when they put the caption, they said, Emory Douglas and his sister. And everybody <laughs> said, well, I know you had a sister. And I have to explain to them that was just what I was saying. This is my sister. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you have like another couple of seconds or minutes, uh, I wanted to, because um, I know you've been to Venezuela and. Um, yeah, Argentina? Yeah, uh, no, I went to Argentina. Oh, you didn't go to Venezuela? No, oh, Venezuela. oh, I thought you went to Venezuela. Okay. No, I went to Argentina. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been to Portugal. Mm-hmm. You know, just, yeah, but that. Uh, over Mexico, I was in. If you're talking about recent, I was over in St. Christopher, mm-hmm. over there, and uh, what the Zapatistas are. Okay, yeah. Well, I know you still have something to say about President uh, Hugo Chavez. Um, you know, making his transition earlier this week. Um, 
Yeah, because yes. he, he just did so much. I mean, he was oh, yeah, a true was, revolutionary. Yeah, he was a true revolutionary. He was guided by love. Mm-hmm. Because he went by, he set the example by what he did. Showed that he was guided by love. Mm-hmm. And he was a symbol of that inspired people. Uh, and they loved him because they loved what he was doing and what he represented. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, really wonderful. Well, I know you've got to run, so I'm not going to hold you. Oh. Cause, well, you told me, you know, you had until 2. Oh, no, it's fine. It's fine. Oh, oh, really? Oh, okay. Oh, all righty, super. Well, then I won't rush off. Let me ask you a couple okay. more questions then. <laughs> so so what do you have planned for um, your presentation at the Harvey Milk Center? Are you going to show slides like you do sometimes? Uh, yes, I'm going to show slides, and I'll probably have uh, made some uh a sampling of of the type of prefabricated materials that mm-hmm. used to be, but I used in some of the uh, uh, images during the day mm-hmm. that was used to get the textures and type stuff on the artwork. Oh. And show uh, one of those handheld waxes that we used to use to wax, that to glue the stuff down with. Mm-hmm. One of those, uh, I still have that. Nice. Stuff, a few things like that, just so people can see. Mm-hmm. What, what it was, uh, get a feel of it. And then I, I'm going to do the presentation and probably uh, question and answers and have uh, some books, not books, but some prints there mm-hmm. that people can purchase if they like. I do have uh, a couple of uh, shoulder bags that I have just images screened on and stuff like that. So, oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, we can carry you around and wear you, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I have an emery on me. <laughs> And also, you know, I work with this young man who uh, hmm. everybody thinks it's my site, but it's not my site. It's his site. Mm-hmm. But we did these skateboard collaborative skateboards. Skateboards? Yeah. Oh, wow. Go wonderful. to com. you will see uh, the skateboards that he's uh, selling. Wow, that's yeah. hot. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's. that's really cool to have your art on somebody's skateboard and then while they're carrying it around. Well, if you want to hear the entire interview, you'll have to go and check out the archives, um, March 9, 2013, um, when Emery's uh, gave a presentation at the uh, Harvey Milk Photo Center as a part of a wonderful exhibition there on the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. And because uh, I want to give you a little, little bit of an interview with Erica Huggins, um, and she's talking about the Black Power Mixtape, another great film. But I want to let you know that um, tonight, um, I said no, not, is it tonight? Uh, yeah, today uh, at 4.15 and also at 7, um, Emery Douglas is going to be in conversation with Stanley Nelson um, at the Landmark Opera Plaza Theaters. Uh, Hudari Davis of Youth Speaks is going to moderate uh, the first uh, conversation and uh and they're gonna be introduced by Linda um Harrison of the Museum of the African Diaspora and then this evening, uh seven at the other screening, uh Emery Douglas and Stanley Nelson are gonna be in conversation and that's gonna be moderated by Cornelius Moore of California Newsreel and they're gonna be introduced by uh Joanne Martinez of KQED. And then um Let's see, Erica Huggins is going to be um, speaking uh, after the film with Stanley Nelson at 7 p.m. at the Piedmont Theater on tomorrow the 3rd. And uh, that's going to be moderated by uh, 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 
Micah, Makia Sorrell of the Center for Media Justice. So that's going to be really exciting, um, and, uh, I mean, you just can't go wrong. You might want to go a few times just for the conversation. Uh, I'm looking really – I'm looking at the Sunday, uh, 1 o'clock, um, uh, Stanley Nelson's going to be in conversation with um, – Erica Huggins again. This one's going to be. This panel is going. To, this conversation is going to be moderated by David D of Hard Knock Radio, and Ricky Vincent is going to introduce them. Ricky Vincent, um, who also um, has a show in KPFA, but he talks about the funk, and so I'm sure they're going to talk a lot about the music, the soundtrack, which is so phenomenal. And then also at the Shattuck Cinemas that evening, well not evening, but afternoon at four o'clock um, on the fourth. Um, so we're on the fourth now. <laughs> Erica's going to be on the third at Piedmont, and then on the fourth she's going to be back. Uh, she's going to be at another theater, Chadwick Cinemas, and because uh, Piedmont's in Oakland. And then uh, at four o'clock on the fourth, <laughs> uh, Stanley Nelson's going to be in conversation with Marvin X, and Marvin X who wrote a book about Eldris Cleaver. And that's going to be awesome. And uh, Eula Taylor is going to, um, of UC Berkeley, is going to um, moderate that conversation. And the introduction is going to be uh, by the Black Panther Film Festival. And then I was looking for um, uh, Steve McCutcheon. I know he's going to be... um, He's going to be at one of the... Oh, yeah. Steve McCutcheon is going to be at theater... um, um, tomorrow, not tomorrow, yeah, tomorrow, Saturday, that's a 1 p.m. Uh, screening, and uh, that conversation is going to be moderated between the two, uh, Steve McCutcheon uh, out of Baltimore, uh, Panther uh, Panther um, chapter, and, uh, and that's going to be moderated by Professor Siri Brown of Merritt College, and they're going to be introduced by J.R. Valerie. Uh, San Francisco Bayview newspaper, and again on Sunday, not Sunday, but yeah, Sunday as well, at six o'clock, uh, October fourth. Uh, Stanley Nelson's going to be a conversation again with Erica Huggins. So Erica's like making her rounds, and and that particular conversation is going to be moderated by Professor Waldo Martin out of UC Berkeley. So it's going to be really hot, and you definitely need to visit their website, blackpanthers.com. But I just wanted to just give you a little heads up. So um, I've just, like, talked away a lot of Erica Huggins' time, um, but I'm going to play as much as I can of this great interview. And uh, she's talking about the Black Power mixtape, and, again, this is from the archives. Well, uh, I was wondering, I was actually with you, um, I was in the audience when uh, we saw the uh, Black Power mixtape as a part of the San Francisco International Film Festival earlier this year, and uh, I, I heard some of your impressions uh, when you were leaving, uh, those of us who knew each other and, at that particular screening. But I was wondering, sort of, what are some of what were some of your and what are some of your initial impressions of the film, the Black Power mixtape that has opened in the San Francisco Bay Area uh, about a week ago. Yes, it's not only opened, it's being held over, I'm happy to say. Yes, that is so excellent. <laughs> it's being held over at the Shattuck Cinemas, mm-hmm. at the Piedmont, the landmark Piedmont in Oakland, and also at the Embarcadero, landmark Embarcadero in San Francisco. And it's also been held over in Los Angeles in a number of theaters. So we're really happy about that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I say we because I've been supporting this film, Wanda, since that day. Mm. My impression is that the the director of the film was not only brilliant in putting the footage together, he has fresh eyes. He doesn't put the American slant on the American experience. He doesn't tell us how to watch the film. He doesn't tell us what we're seeing. We're given the footage, and we are able to, as, you know, innately intelligent human beings, figure out what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. Um, And having met him, I understand why I had such a, um, a wonderful uh, feeling about the film and the necessity to get it out beyond film festivals and beyond small groups of people who critique film to communities at large. And so I've been supporting the film ever since that day. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Um, you know, the film... Um, uh, Captures, you know, some of your great friends, uh, uh, Sophie Carmichael, you know, Kwame Ture, Angela Davis, and Kathleen Cleaver, and and what I really enjoyed about the film uh, was the the way that they were humanized. Is you know, they're accessible. Um, they're like, oh wow, I, I could do this. You know, I'm sure many young audience, you know, uh, or viewers in the audience might think when they, you know, meet. You know Kwame Ture, you know in in the living room of his mother interviewing her, <laughs> or in a car, you know traveling to um, you know a, a speaking engagement, or you know watch you know um, Angela Davis uh, at you know some rally speaking. Uh, that's that's what I really enjoyed uh, about that, as well as you know juxtaposing these iconic figures with uh, artists who are younger, who are inspired by their work. Yes, and um, and what is your question again? Oh, uh, <laughs> there wasn't a question. Uh, it was a comment. Um, yeah, and so with regards to it says that um, the, uh, the Black Power mixtape was, um, uh, it's, uh, I guess it came out on uh, Loverture Films, which is uh, Danny Glover's um, company, and, and he was saying that um, that the film felt less like a documentary and more like a photo album, lovingly pasted together by foreign exchange students who stayed with a black family in America for about ten years, and uh, and the uh, the footage that um, was found and put together by two Swedish television journalists who set out to chronicle the Black Power Movement in America. It takes place between 1967 and 1975. And when one reads your biography, uh, you were, you know, you've got quite an extensive um, uh, array of activities that you were involved in, you know, from, you know, where you say your political activism began in 1963 with the March on Washington to your, you know, founding the um, the Los Angeles chapter of the Black Panther Party. So I was wondering, as you were watching the film, sort of, um, sort of with regards, sort of what thoughts ran through your mind when you looked at that period of history and that you were actually a, 
you know, a participant in at that time? Well, my thoughts are um, were similar to yours that mm-hmm. and to Danny Glover's. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of love and care put into the film, and we got to see um, people who we have uh, been taught to view as extraordinary people. We got to see them as ordinary people, ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And I believe that every person is capable of making making an extraordinary contribution to our world. And that is exactly how I felt as a a young teenager um, at the March on Washington, that I had to make a contribution to the world. I didn't understand how my life would unfold then. I didn't know that I would be a widow at age 20 and incarcerated three months later and all of that. I had no idea and that I would be separated from my daughter, who was just a baby. And that is the story of many people, not my, not the specifics of my story, but the general story of standing up and stepping forward to transform the way that we interact with one another and perceive one another, that there are consequences. And as I watched the film, I remembered so much about how each voice and face of the older footage did that and how the younger voices that we got to hear so lovingly uh, support us in wanting to do more now, like Talib Kweli and Erica Badu mm-hmm. and Robin Kelly. Right, yeah. And they are all in their own way doing what they can do to serve humanity. And that is one of the major things that the film um, prompts in us, that it is important that each of us do something um, in the skin we're in, with the people that we love, with the connections that we have made in our lives, no matter how young or old we are, and uh, with the work that we're doing now, like your radio show, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we contribute to the upliftment rather than just critiquing what someone else or some group of other people have not done. Right. Yeah. When I when I you know read your biography, just looking at you know all of the different uh, roles that that you played, um, you know um, around. Uh, you know, HIV AIDS uh education and awareness, um, to being, you know, the director of the Oakland Community School, uh um, you know, to your your um sharing with uh you know, us how you were able to uh to survive solitary confinement, uh, you know, through instituting um, you know, meditation as a means of survival, which you went on to teach others. Um and I, I believe we met when you were um volunteer coordinator at the Shanti Project because I was working 
uh, I was director of the AIDS Volunteer Clearinghouse, and I think that was when I, I met you. I mean, I knew you, of course, because you're famous, but I had never met you, met you. <laughs> and and I remember when you were working with the Shanti Project, um, uh, and, and I didn't know at that time that you were the first woman practical support volunteer coordinator there, and, you know, and that you were working um you know, uh, with women and children uh, with HIV in the Tenderloin and Mission Districts of San Francisco um, and 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 then, you know, developing a citywide program for the support of gay, lesbian, bisexual, and questioning youth with HIV and AIDS. And um, I was just wondering um, if you could talk about sort of the trajectory that has been your life with regards to these various leadership roles as well as your commitment to education because wherever one looks, um, one sees you connected to uh, some sort of institution around education. Like right now, you're a teacher at, a professor at Laney College. I, I just want to say that thank you for reviewing um pieces of my life, but the trajectory is um, is interesting for me, mm-hmm. how I see life trajectory. It's all about the, not the choices that I made to do this thing or that thing or to be here or there, but the choice I made to follow my heart mm. and to do what is needed in the moment. And so when I knew I had the opportunity, for instance, to work at Shanti Project, my response was, why wouldn't I look at the outrageous numbers of people of color and women and children of color who are who were then and now affected by the virus and its attendant illnesses. And so I stepped forward. And after that, I was asked to, after I was no longer at Shanti Project, doing the work you mentioned in the mission in the Tenderloin, that I did similar work with the AIDS Project Contra Costa and started a similar program in North Richmond through a clinic. Um, I didn't do them for any other reason, these things that you mentioned. I didn't do them for any other reason than to serve Mm -hmm. and to do so in a way that seemed to be the most important at the time. And I believe you call me a leader. I believe that you are a leader. You said that I was famous. I believe that you are famous. I believe we're all famous leaders. Mm -hmm. We just have to make the choice to lead, and and the best leader is the leader without followers. Mm -hmm. So we just lead. We just step out there, and we understand the consequences, and we still step out. So that's why I've done what I've done. And I believe that teaching is the most revolutionary act that anyone can do. I definitely believe that that's true for me. Because in the classroom, I bring all of myself to the students that I'm with. And they don't, many of them don't know anything about my background. And I like that. And when they do, I don't hide it. I respond. But I show up as Erica Huggins, who is just their sociology teacher or their women and gender studies teacher. It doesn't matter to me, in other words, how they see me. 
-hmm. What's important is that they're inspired to learn about their world because the courses I teach are all about systems and how they work or do not to support human beings. So at Laney College and now I teach at Berkeley City College and when I teach at San Francisco State University or California State University East Bay, I walk in with all of Erica Huggins in tow. I don't leave parts of myself at home or fear what um, another adult, another teaching adult or staff adult might say about who I am. Um, because, you see, everybody, Wanda, does not consider me famous. Um, some people consider me infamous because of the perceptions they bring from their lives to who I am. So I hope that I'll be able to teach in some capacity and mentor, which is even more important to me, mm-hmm. in some capacity until I close my eyes on this life. And at the at the underpinning, the foundation of my life is my practice of meditation. I believe that uh, we, I'm sorry to say that we have uh, misunderstood its importance. We don't, in in most communities of color, we don't misunderstand the power of prayer. But a little girl once told me that prayer is when you're talking to God and meditation is when you're listening. Mm. Yeah. She was six years old and she figured that out because I used to go into the schools and take uh, relaxation and very, very simple meditation and stretching exercises to the children so that they could develop internal locus of control. In other words, that they were the boss of themselves Mm -hmm. rather than letting their emotions or their reactions guide them throughout the day. And it was all about at the time when I was doing that work for four years um, with a particular program, they... Schools expect little children to sit at a desk for almost eight hours. That's ridiculous. Okay, well, that's what we asked them to do. How are we supporting them? So um, simple, mindful sitting for five minutes, deep breathing for a couple of minutes um, keeps them on task. Why am I mentioning that? Because it keeps me on task. And I hope that it keeps me humble enough to know that no matter what I've done, there is always more to do and that the way to do it isn't in memory of all that I've done. I just do it because it is the next best thing to do. And and as I said to you earlier, I, I listen from my heart. And the heart is not a weak place. If, if when I'm wa- when I'm at my most wise, I know that my mind is fine-tuned by my heart. So I hope I answered all of your questions that were in that last set that you asked. Yeah, that was that was really beautiful because um, October is Black Panther History Month. Um, yeah. Yeah, 45 years, and there are going to be a really a lot of wonderful programs that um, quite a few of them uh, hosted by It's About Time. 
Yes. Um, Black Panther Party, and uh, I know Emory Douglas is going to be honored. Really wonderful man, and uh, and I hope the film continues, you know, to be held over, which would be really great as well. Then people can can go see the film in October because that's just another week. Um, but when I and and also October is also Ma'afa Commemoration Month, and when we look at uh, so the Black Holocaust, and we we reflect on the residual psychological effects of enslavement and how we can heal from the trauma. And we're actually, we started uh, in in light of the Ma'afa Commemoration Month, uh, a meditation series that started Monday. And I completely understand what you were talking about and what that little girl said about, um, you know, um, see God is listening. I'm trying to think, which, how did she put it? When you pray, yeah, talking to God, right, and when you meditate, you're listening, right, exactly, exactly. Um, it was just so wonderful, um, and I'm so happy that. Well, um, if you want to hear the rest of that interview, which is you almost caught all of it, um, just go visit us in the archives. But I wanted to mention that this year. Um, as a part of Ma'afa Commemoration Month, um, there's going to be an emancipation walk led by Hassan Ali Jones Bay on Sunday, October 4th, as a part of the San Francisco Bay Area Ma'afa Commemoration of the ancestors lost in the Middle Passage of the Transatlantic Slave Trade. At the 11 a.m. Sunday service at the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples in San Francisco, uh, there will be an emancipation walk. Participants will sing spirituals and walk the inner circumference of the worship hall as if walking a labyrinth. But in this case, the labyrinth will summarize the Bakongo cosmogram that brought enslaved Africans from the many cultures and religious re, re, uh, and religions together as one people in the Americas. During the 12 noon to 1 p.m. fellowship hour and potluck immediately following the service downstairs in the fellowship hall, a discussion will continue the Ma'afa commemoration uh, program. So the Church of the Fellowship of All Peoples is located at 412041 Larkin Street in San Francisco. And uh, they have a great website, fellowshipsf.org. And then for more information about the Ma'afa commemoration, you can visit Ma'afa, M-A-A-F-A, S-F, for San Francisco, com for other uh, programs and events that we're going to be supporting this particular month. But um, but anyway, I just wanted to let you know that. And looks like my guests are in the studio to talk about the 12th annual uh, San Francisco uh, Trolley Dances, and that's going to be really exciting. So um, uh, good morning. Uh, Kim, are you on the line? I am. Good morning. Good morning. And is uh, Beeb, are you joining us or is it Zoe? Zoe is here. Oh, hey, Zoe. So Beep must be joining us. Well, great. Oh, there it goes. It's almost like on cue. There's Beep. <laughs> Hello. Oh, Beep, is that Hi. you? Oh, that's, oh, you all are just so on it. Awesome, awesome. Well, wow. So, Kim, why don't we start with you? And how do you say your last name, Kim? Epifano. Epifano, right. And I think a long time ago, maybe 12 years ago or 11 years ago, I, I seem to remember, I could be imagining, that we had a conversation about trolley dances. And how, <laughs> yeah, 
it was the first year. Wow, well, we, we certainly need to catch up, don't we? So I'm happy you decided to, like, you know, I'm glad I asked, and, and you said yes <laughs> to come back and join us, you know, uh, what, 11 years later, because you're still going strong, and it's so wonderful, uh, the Charlie dances. I think the year that I came out, I don't remember which one of the years, but brought my granddaughter, and we just loved it. It was so wonderful, uh, riding public transportation and just seeing all these wonderful, wonderful works of of, of dance and art. I mean, like the dance 